Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast that is on the cycle of being sort of okayly introduced. When this episode goes out, it will be Indigenous Peoples Day. And so to, to talk about that more, we're, we're going to talk to Dahlia Kilsback, who is a member of the Northern Cheyenne, or has uh, Northern Cheyenne Tribal Citizenship, and has sort of studied and worked in federal Indian tribal policy. Dahlia, hello. How, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. Thank you um, for inviting me here today. Of course. Garrison is also here. Garrison, hello. Hello. I'm I'm currently also doing writing about indigenous stuff, but within the context of Canada, which you people should will probably hear later this week. Um so yeah. I guess first thing I wanted to talk about is a little bit is about what Indigenous Peoples Day is and why it is that and not the other thing. Um, yeah, so Indigenous Peoples Day, um, as many people know, is replacing 
I'm going to say it, Chris, Christopher <laughs> Columbus Day. Um, that is still like a federal holiday, but so multiple cities and states have opted to use Indigenous Peoples Day instead. Um, and the reasoning for that is acknowledging the atrocities that were committed by Christopher Columbus, who, um, first of all, did not discover America, um, but um, continued to um, not only use slavery, but um, commit different forms of genocide, rape, et cetera, all of these terrible atrocities. And so rather than celebrating um, somebody like that, um, Indigenous Peoples Day um, has been implemented in order to recognize the people who are actually here first. Um, and Indigenous Peoples ac across the Americas, they're... Um, histories, um, cultures, and contributions. Yeah, Columbus, real piece of shit. Worst Christopher, like, <laughs> yeah, it like, re really cannot be overstated how bad that guy was. Like, even, even, you know, even people in that era who had committed their own genocides, like Isabella and Ferdinand, who, you know, expelled yeah. the Jews from Spain, where it's like, like it, you know, if, if, if once you've reached the sentence, expelled the Jews from X, like you, you're already, you're already in the, 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 the shit list of the worst people in human history. And even they saw what Columbus was doing. It was like, what on earth? Bad, bad guy, bad name. Things are going to continue to go badly. And yeah, that, that was another thing that, that I, I wanted to talk about, which is federal Indian policy, and you know this this is an incredibly broad this is an incredibly broad area spanning like three hundred years, so we're not going to be able to go into like an enormous amount of depth in it, but I think it's important that people have an understanding of i mean a just what the u s did and how everyone else has had this sort of deal with it. And then also the fact that this is something that changes over time and has has looked different. It's looked it's been bad in different ways. Yeah. Um, and so when talking about federal Indian policy, um, I always like to contextualize it within a larger um, sort of like Euro um, American like teleology of colonial conquest, and then moving on to settler colonialism and where we are with federal federal Indian policy policy currently. Um, so how do we connect Christopher Columbus to where we are currently? Um, and this is the history of federal Indian policy and Western legal discourse and how um, European powers throughout history have defined what it means to be an Indian person in relationship to um, indigenous peoples' rights to their own land and to self-governance. Um, so when we're looking at the different periods of federal Indian policy, um, prior to there being a United States government, we have the colonial period, um, which is 1492 to 1776. Um, this is how federal Indian policy legal scholars divide that. Um, and it's really important to kind of give the difference between what is um, a colonial state versus a settler colonial state when you're talking about not just the United States government, but also the Canadian government and um, different governments globally. Um, but I wanna talk just a little bit about um, what I mean by the difference between 
a colonial government and a settler colonial government um, because they're tied together. Um, so by a settler colonial government, I mean, what I mean is that um, it is defined by the deterritorialization of indigenous popula populations. And so rather than in a colonial government as you had with Christopher Columbus and the Spanish and with the English, et cetera, um, is rather than a state and sovereignty being conceived as all these resources are going back to the metropole, all these resources are going back to England or to Spain, et cetera. And colonial occupation is in is um, conceptualized within this way in settler colonial governments. Um, the colonists come to these lands and stay and they're, what they define as sovereignty is within this land that they define now as their own. So, and in order for that process to happen, um, there needs to be different forms of genocide of the indigenous populations. And so that's what we saw with Christopher Columbus and throughout history um, was just the depletion of a lot of our indigenous populace. Um, and so when I mean about the United States um, being a, a settler colonial state, I mean that this is current and ongoing. And so when we talk about federal Indian policy, um, federal Indian policy is always in this conversation with what started with Christopher Columbus as the doctrine of discovery. And um, so that's how we define the colonial period. And feel free to like stop me and ask me questions else I'm just going to try to move Quick, yeah. quickly because there's a lot yeah i I, th I think we probably should briefly talk about what the, the doctor discovery is mm -hmm. um at least before we get to sort of the marshall trilogy and stuff for sure yeah, so what, what does that actually mean legally um so legally um it's the discovery of a quote-unquote newfound land um by european colonial forces. And the reason why it's called the doctrine of discovery was that indigenous peoples on these lands were deemed unable to govern themselves and they did not know how to utilize their land up to the definition of what the U European powers thought it, um, land use was. That um, indigenous peoples didn't have the same concept of property um, and same with uh, their relationship with um, resources and resource extraction. So when um, Christopher Columbus and all of these other colonizers, conquistadors came to the quote unquote new land, um, they saw all of this rich, plentiful resource and thought to themselves, well, obviously these people don't know what they're doing because there's just so much, they have not done anything with it. Um, and we're going to take this back to two hours because obviously they're inferior beings and don't know what property is. So um, legally, um, it, it, the doctrine of discovery conveyed legal title to and ownership of American soil to European nations, um, a title that devolved to the United States. And so um, this definition is expansive. Um, and expansive discovery implies that Native nations have a right to lands as occupants or possessors, but they are incompetent to manage those lands and need a quote-unquote benevolent guardian 
such as a federal government who holds legal title. And um, so when we're talking about this legal title, it devolves to the United States later on um, in history after the American Revolution. Um, and so rather than being colonial states um, as the United States, like 13 original colonies, given um, the American Revolution and its own constitution and its creation of itself as a nation state, then that turns into a settler colonial government. Yeah, and I think we can, yeah, we can get to what happens next then, because yeah, yeah, you, you have you have this elaborate legal framework that lets you steal people's land and murder them and then control it. And mm-hmm. then the outgrowth of that is this sort of weird event where the, the colonies go into rebellion and suddenly, yeah, there's, there's not a colony, they're not colonies anymore, they just are the state. And so, yeah, talk about what happens next after the sort of formation of the United States. So after the formation of the United States, um, so we have this period, the American Revolution, which I'll not really dive that into, is 1776 to 1789, and it's called the Confederation Period. But next we have the Trade and Intercourse Act era, which is from 1789 to 1835. And so this is defined with the United States Constitution and Congress's exclusive right to regulate trade relations and make land secessions and enter into treaties with tribes. So this is a um, treaty making era with the tribes that only the United States federal government is able to. And there's a distinction there because there had been a lot of contestation between states and the federal government as to who is going to now deal with these um, these nations that are with our within our own settler colonial borders. So whose job is is that to solve this issue? Um, so within the United States Constitution, there are three clauses that define the United States legal relationship to American Indians. And so these are the treaty making clause, the commerce clause, and the property clause. Um, and so this this movement from just relying on the doctrine of discovery and treaty making processes between different European powers now is between the United States federal government and tribes. And so what this does is now tribes are um, located within the United States territory. And this places Indians within the boundaries and jurisdiction of the United States. And now they're a matter of domestic interest. Something that leads it to one of the sort of complicated questions that that changes to this whole era, which is about what does sovereignty mean for these tribes? And I mean, to what extent do they even continue to possess it? And how does that even sort of, you know, how, how does that work if you ha- when you have this new state that sort of just has, has claimed control here? Right. And also during this period, um, well, well, later on when we have, um, sorry, jumping ahead of myself, when we have the extermination of the treaty making mm-hmm. process, and this completely um, removes seeing tribes as independent sovereign nations. Um, so I think that we'll kind of get more into that later. But the thing with federal Indian policy um, is that it's sort of self-prophesizing 
So as settlers are moving across America, um, the United States government also has to create these policies um, in order to legalize Mm. these land cessations and movements. And a pattern that we do see here um, throughout history and throughout time is that the United States federal government as a settler state is um, over the rights of, over the um, rights to land and rights of indigenous peoples themselves, you have a priority of the settler state in order to acquire land. So a lot of the reason why um, later these treaties will be broken, et cetera, is because settlers are moving into these lands and the United States is then breaking these treaties in order to um, have more more land, more land secession. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. the, the law, the law is sort of just following the violence, and it just becomes a sort of retroactive justification for yes, just yeah, breaking everything. It's it's a self justifying sort of sovereignty. Yeah. So this is the removal period, and what a lot of people may have heard of. So it's from 1835 to. 1861, and what we have is the extinguishment of Indian title to Eastern lands and the removal of Indian tribes westward. So um, one of the most notable acts is the Removal Act, which was authorized by President Andrew Jackson, which moved um, Indians from the east to the west of the Mississippi River into what is was called Indian Territory. Um, and what brought about this um, Federal Federal Act um, was a series of three foundational statutes within federal Indian policy um, dictated by Chief Justice John Marshall. So first we have Johnson v. McIntosh, Cherokee Nation v. Georgia, and Worcester v. Georgia. And I won't go into um, too much detail, but what this these essentially um, did and legally defined tribes as being domestic dependent nations. And so it clarified more that, again, tribal nations are underneath the federal government's overview, not the states. So, yeah, it placed tribes above state jurisdiction. And what this was trying to do was um, solve some issues that tribes such as the Cherokee Nation had with different states when it came to land and um, jurisdiction over said land. Um, But that is kind of the basis of a lot of federal Indian policy and still remains true today. And what is notable um, in each one of these statutes, um, I believe particularly in Worcester v. Georgia, although it seems that it was supporting tribal sovereignty in in that they were above state jurisdiction, a lot of these um, statutes cited racist president and the doctrine of discovery. So um, what you see for federal Indian policy is that a lot of the found, well, all the foundation for <laughs> federal Indian policy based on president is the doctrine of discovery, which is reliant on the idea that um, American Indians were savages and needed um, federal benevolence and um, paternalism in order to regulate their own affairs. Yeah, and I think that's well. Okay, we should probably not just immediately get to allotment, but yeah, because there's, there's 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 also yeah, the, this is also the period we used. Yeah, the thing you were talking about earlier, the thing you probably know about, which is okay. It's, it's not true to say this is when this starts, but this is Indian Removal Act, Trail of Tears, 
territory. And you know, one, one thing that, you know, I think one, one of the sort of running themes of this is that, you know, the, 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 the law in this context is just sort of, it becomes a sort of retroactive excuse to do whatever like needs to be done from the perspective, quote unquote, of, of the sort of, of the settler state to just take all of this land. Yeah. And I think maybe like one of the keystones of this is Andrew Jackson just straight up telling the Supreme Court to fuck off so that he can do so he can do a trail of tears. Yeah. Um, so the removal act um, happened after all of these statutes that you already had that supported um, federal Indian sovereignty. And so the Cherokees in Georgia were one of the tribes that were removed. Um, and so you kind of see what you talked about, the the retrograde kind of justifications for said removal, despite um, the statutes that are there. So although that like Marshall um, in Worcester v. Georgia determined that the state of Georgia did not have jurisdiction over Cherokee territory, all this ter- although this territory was in the state's borders. Um, later on, you see with the Removal Act that um, although these statutes are still precedent in federal Indian policy, those were null in order for um, there to be more um, expansion of settlers within these areas. So when it was decided that, oh, wait, we do need this land and we don't actually want these Indians here, let's put them to the side over past the Mississippi so that they're out of sight, out of mind, right? So we see more of this um, justification for settler expansion. And so again, we bring it back to these themes of like settler colonialism in order to um, kind of gain more of this land. And a lot of these statutes are still cited the doctrine of discovery in them. And rather than supporting tribal policy, the relationship between the United States federal government and American Indians um, was not based on the rights of Indians, but more that they can't, they can't govern themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so, and that's the whole issue is like, people are like, they don't know what they're doing. So we're going to push them and like take their land again. So I, I don't know if you want me to go too much into the Trail of Tears, but um, you're seeing a lot of patterns here. <laughs> I think different forms of genocide, yeah. different forms of taking land. And this was this is all around the same time as the Indian Act in Canada as well, which was did a very similar thing, um, especially starting in the 1900s. It's starting in the 20th century as well with the uh, like expansion of the like assimilation programs. Yeah, and I think I guess the one other thing I want to point out about this is that you know, so one of one of the things that happens with Trail of Tears is that the Supreme Court like tells Jackson that he can't do this, and Jackson just does it anyways. And I think that's a, a very interesting, important moment because you know th- this is this is this thing right where the federal government can tell the Supreme Court to fuck off, right? And there's nothing the Supreme Court could do about it. And if you look at what they did it to do. The thing they did it to do was genocide, and it's. I think it's. It's just. I think it's a very sort of. I don't know. This incredibly grim, like, you know, encapsulation of like what this state actually is, which is this sort of genocide machine and whatever sort of. You know, this is what sovereignty is, right? It's the ability to break your own rules in order to sort of maintain, in order to maintain the system. So you, you, you know, you you break your own laws 
And, you know, as, as we're going to get to in a, in a second, like you break your own treaties continuously and you do this because, you know, the genocide machine has to keep moving. Right. And um, there's a couple of federal Indian policy theorists, um, Bindler Jr., who's one of the most famous ones, and David E. Wilkins, who talks about how there's no need for checks and balances within the federal Indian policy system. So you have Congress that is able to um, pass whatever act they want. And and then you also have the Supreme Court and then you also have executive action. But it wasn't really delineated that well um, within, um, especially when it comes to this period as to who is going to be dealing with the Indians kind of yeah. thing. Um, and so this kind of confusion and not really completely defining what it means to be a domestic dependent nation, I think really just goes to show how uh, much of a fragile edifice like set, yep. settler um, colonial policy is for it is within the system. Um, but again, moving on, it comes back again to land. So the reservation area era in 1861 to 1887 um, has you have a lot of westward expansion of non-Indians um, settlers specifically to California. You also have the creation of Indian reservations and resulting Indian wars. Um, uh, so during this era, what you see a lot of um, are different types of attempts at assimilation um, and a lot of warfare. So you have a lot of the Plains tribes, my tribe, for instance. Um, that are going through all of these battles, fighting um, forced removal onto reservations. Um, one of the most famous ones was um, the Battle of Greasy Grass or the Little Bighorn, um, where General Custer was killed by Sioux, Cheyennes, and Arapahoes, and different instances of battles such as those, and also where a lot of tribes. Um, were forcibly removed to areas that they weren't originally from. So like how the Cherokees were moved to Oklahoma, there was attempts of my tribe, for instance, Northern Cheyenne, to be moved down to Oklahoma as well. And that's why there's some Southern Cheyennes in Oklahoma and then my tribe, the Northern Cheyennes in Montana. Um, Another um, in Another thing that is happening during this period are boarding schools, um, the boarding school era. So this attempt at assimilation through education um, and assimilation is also um, within within the settler colonial kind of structure. It's, it's defined as a process where indigenous people end up um, conforming to different constructed notions of um, settler norms. Um, so if they're not absorbed within the state completely, then they're attempted attempt to be assimilated um, culturally, um, through education, through languages, in terms of economics. So now you have a bunch of different sort of bureaucratic structures on these reservations trying to make tribal governments appear to be um, or constructed as as settler colonial governments are. Um, so maybe it's the three branches um, in ways that aren't just compatible with different tribes culturally. And you also have 
the attempted eradication of different kind of spiritual and cultural practices and a lot of Christianity um, yeah. being forced onto different people yeah. and just kind of terrible things that um, I think more and more people are becoming aware of due to due to current movements. But we'll we'll get into that more later. Do we want to talk about allotment briefly? Because if I remember correctly, this is in the same period. Yes, allotment period and um, forced assimilation. So this is like 1871 to 1934. And so this is the end of the treaty making process. So the whole idea of um, trying to force tribes onto reservations and sign these treaties were to again, take land and make sure that the United States has more land and all the land, et cetera, that they could possibly have. Um, so at this end of treaty making, um, a federal allotment of Indian lands also happened in the, um, the Dawes Act. Um, and so what this was, was an attempt to um, further uh, shrink the the reservation lands that tribes are already guaranteed within treaties. Um, so during this period, I think somewhere like nine million acres were um, taken from tribal reservations during the allotment process. So the what the allotment process did was it counted each and every individual Indian um, that was eligible. I think there were adults uh, um yeah adults that were eligible um and each one of them were given a certain parcel of land a certain number of acreage um and once all of this land was calculated what you had was an excess of land quote-unquote excess of land that the tribes obviously didn't need because they had still too too many people and so what the excess of land um was utilized for is for pioneers and for settlers. Um, if it didn't go um, to the federal government, it was to um, incentivize settlers to colonize, essentially <laughs> settle yeah. on um, Indian lands. So trying its hardest to not stay true to its treaty-making pra- practices. I think the other thing that was interesting to me about this is that like, because the, the, one of the other goals of this is to sort of like, ooh, it's the civilizing mission. It's like, yeah, we're going to turn them into, or we're going to turn all these people into like, like uh, yeoman farmers, like true American frontiersmen or whatever. And it's just like, it just doesn't work because economically that doesn't make any sense. Like you, you, breaking up all these like lands is like, it doesn't, you, you can't just give someone like a small patch of like shitty land and have them farm. Like this doesn't, like this, it doesn't, it doesn't, it like, they certainly just, tried. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that was the, one of the main thing. One of the main things in Canada was about getting them to adopt like uh, like European farming practices. Yeah, which which they 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 already knew how to like get their own food, right? They were trying to change this whole system of 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 like of, of food growth to to this like to to this European way of of farming, and it just and they were just forcing them to. And there's yeah, it's it's. It, yeah, it's, it gets it gets it gets super it gets super like dark and horrible once you like look at like the letters that were being written by like the heads of these programs, um, like you know instructing like these agents who were stationed at these like reservations to like 
force people to be do, doing this horrible farming for like all day, every day. And, and I think, you know, the, 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 the sign that this was like, like, this is, like, this is so bad that even the U S government eventually is like, wait, this, this, like, this is fucked up and doesn't work. So I think that's, yeah, we transition to sort of like the next phase, I guess. Yeah, a very process. short phase. Um, yeah. yeah, so the next phase um, is the Indian Reorganization Act. And so this only lasted six years from 1934 to 1940. Um, so this is when allotment ended. As you said, the United States government was like, wait, this isn't working. Um, what else can we, we do? The Indians aren't dying off. They're not assimilating. They're not acculturating. We don't know what to do with them. Um, so maybe we'll we'll have them adopt these constitutions, and a lot of them were just templates. So regardless of whether or not they were, um, I think, compatible with tribal different tribes' way of life, they were like, "You have these constitutions now." Um, now you're you're a tribe and this is what each tribe has to look like in order for us, the federal government, to recognize you as a legitimate entity. Uh, and um, and then so you have the establishment of these um, tribal governments that consist of tribal councils and big business committees, et cetera. However, this period is fleeting, very fleeting. Yeah. Um, and next... Um, you have the termination era. So this is the period of time where the federal government essentially even more so wants to just get rid of the quote unquote Indian problem, which is the existence of indigenous peoples um, that are reminders to the government essentially that um, they are a settler colonial force and they don't know what to do with us because they tried to commit genocide they tried to remove us etc etc it's still not working um they decided that our tribal governments um aren't aren't legitimate and they just decide well it's too much to try to keep up with our treaties and what we promised them when it comes to health care education housing etc etc how about we terminate our federal responsibility, our trust responsibility that are delineated in federal Indian policy and in our treaties um, and give them off to to the states to decide what to do with. And so during this period, you see um, sort of the the federal um, dissolution of some tribes such as the Menomini and other ones um, as well. So this is, another dark time, the the dark times just keep on coming. And what federal Indian policy scholars have um, characterized federal Indian policy as a pendulum. So swinging from side to side between this this, uh, termination of tribes. So the federal Indian government as trying to get rid of tribes, especially as you can see in this era, and then the pendulum of the other side is self-determination, but both of these are held within the context of goals of assimilation. So um, this is just another phase of terribleness. <laughs> yep. Well, I think this this phase also, like one thing I think that also like is important people understand is that like, like it's not like people aren't fighting this like the whole time 
I mean, even going like even going back to the stuff of the Seventh Cavalry, like the Seventh Cavalry lose like boars, they lose battles all the time. People are fighting constantly, and this is this period, the termination period, is also where you see the uh, the, the the rise of the American Indian movements. Yeah, a lot of these periods can be like dove into more and all of these different things. Um, in every instance, in every instance of federal Indian policy, you have resistance, which we're not covering here right now. Um, but you have instances um, throughout history where indigenous peoples have fought for their rights to land, to um, for their community, to being sovereign nations, et cetera. And that's why the federal Indian the federal government, not federal Indian government, the federal government has not been able to eradicate us much to their dismay. Um, uh, And so now I'm going to switch into the era that we are considered to be in, which I had mentioned when I talked about the pendulum of federal Indian policy. So now we are in the self-determination era, um, which began in 1962. and we have um, the right, it's characterized with the revitalization of tribal entities. So um, going kind of back to when there was the Indian Reorganization Act. So we have our tribal councils. Um, there's restoration of some tribes under federal recognition who were terminated. Again, not all of them. We also have the Indian Civil Rights Act. So this, this kind of uh, guaranteed individual Indians, um, some rights, um, not just characterized by their tribes, also the self-determination policy. So this is when um, Nixon condemned the termination policy and gave more control to Indians rather than the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is a federal bureau. And just kind of like other policies that um, have given the tribes more rights to um, determine for themselves and their own tri- their own people um, to a certain degree underneath the federal government as domestic dependent nations. And again, I, I think that we have seen a lot more movement, but within the context of being within a settler colonial state, um, it's always, I think, a possibility that the, the federal Indian government or the federal government, I keep saying Indian, Uh, the federal government will try um, to take more and more. And I think, um, for instance, when it comes to issues of fishing rights, issues of um, hunting rights with states, not even just with the federal government. So you have a lot of states throughout, throughout history, but still ongoing, um, that attempt to encroach on um, tribal treaties. Um, and again, treaties are the basis of federal Indian policy. Without these treaties, the lands would have never been seceded to the United States. And so um, there's this, this sort of like legal legal conundrum, I would say, of where um, all these, all treaties in the history of the United States with, Indi- with Indian tribes have been broken in some way, shape or form. Um, but still, um, Amer- American Indians have to live on their reservations instead of having their, their land back. And so nowadays, a lot of movement has been towards um, 
land back, what this means, what is this process? And I think it means a lot of different things for different people, indigenous people, um, because again, there's, there's 574 federally recognized tribes. And so it's not one monolith of ideas, a monolith of, yeah. of beliefs, but by just by saying land back, that's like recognition that this is our, this was our land first and you're not keeping your side of the deal and never have been. Could you maybe go a bit more into land back as a topic? Cause like specifically like the past five years, it has really gained a lot more like um, uh, popularity as like a slogan. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I think for a lot of, a lot of people who like chanted and hear it, don't always really know exactly what it means. There's a lot of like mixed opinions on what it means. Um, of course, on like the more like reactionary side, it's like people be like, what you're going to like kick white people out of these areas. Like that's kind of, that's what a lot of like the reactionary takes on land back is. Um, and I'm sure most people who are listening to this podcast, that's not what they think. Um, but they may not really know exactly what it means either. Um, they may think it sounds like a, a good idea, but they're not quite sure what it is. Do you mind kind of talking about how land back has like developed as as an idea and what like what like you mean by it personally at least? Yeah, I think I can talk about more about like what I mean by it personally and what I've understood it to mean to other people. Um, because I think um land back itself, it means like a lot of different things. And I don't think that there has been a concrete kind of idea of what it means. But I think a lot of the movement, I want to like contextualize it within a lot of the um, sort of act- activism that we've seen in the recent years. Um, so for instance, No Dapple, the Dakota Access Pipeline in 2016, and kind of, I think that's one of the more recent events that have really illustrated on a wide scale, like globally, about um, indigenous movements, um, sovereign movements, and especially when it comes to environmental justice. But what you saw there was encroachment on tribal treaty land within um, the, when it had to do with the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, so although it didn't cross some of the current reservation borders, it was in treaty land, you know, yeah, that same, kind of thing. Same, yeah. same, same thing with Stop Line 3, how it, it, it encroached on like the hunting land and the farmland that was not technically in the like residential, like, like, um, like, uh, like not in like the reservation area where people live, but it's in the surrounding area that is for hunting that is specified in the treaty. So right. and people are trying to use these like loopholes to get the pipelines through. Right, right. And so I think what you see is a lot of um, solidarity across tribes, because this is not new. This has never been new. And a lot of tribes can relate to that. And what you've seen and what I've hoped that I've highlighted throughout this kind of very brief overview of federal Indian policy is the different ways that Indigenous rights to land and sovereignty has been attacked in different forms by settler and colonial governments. Um, And I think that the day and age that we live in now has allowed for um, sort of more widespread solidarity, especially over social media. Um, And so when we say land back, for me, how I interpret it as what people mean when they're saying it 
is recognition of our tribal sovereignty, of our right to this land that has not been respected. And then I also think that it means, well, if these treaties aren't being respected, then how is this treaty still um, valid, right? How come we aren't getting our land back because you're not upholding your end of the deal? Well, some people also might mean and recognize that this whole United States government is a settler state, right? Based on the doctrine of discovery, which is based on um, denying tribes and American Indians of their rights to this land. Um, so some people might take it to this whole other context of, yeah, well, maybe this is this is all of our land, et cetera, et cetera. But in practice, what does this look like? And I think in practice, a lot of people um, are seeing it with um, reparations or people buying land back for tribes and giving it back to tribes. And we have seen some of that or um, also just people interrupting the narrative um, in their own mind of their Euro-American identity. So non-American non, um, Indians and primarily European settlers and their history of their own families taking part of the settler colonial process. And how has that, um, what about their lands? There's all, everyone who um, descends, I guess, from these, these settlers. And I wanna be specific when I'm talking about Euro-American settlers um, um, and how they currently benefit from these systems. And I think by saying land back, um, it's, we're able to highlight this movement for tribal sovereignty and recognition on a global scale, instead of searching for justice within the quote unquote, like um, searching for justice within the courts of the conqueror. How, how do we expect um, for the conqueror to be held accountable for all of these atrocities, attempts at genocide, assimilation, et cetera, by taking it more towards a global scale, such as no dapple highlighting these to other people as these are injustices. Um, this is this is ongoing genocide. I think that land back has many like a plethora of meanings in the, in that sense. Yeah, yeah. I hope that answers your question. I myself um, might use it in in some some different ways um, because land, as we conceive it to be property, kind of grew that concept grew in conversation with Euro-American yeah, absolutely. Yeah. conceptions of property. So I think that um, moving forward, when we talk about decolonization as a process and not like a metaphor, um, that thinking of land back, not within that whole idea of Euro-American property as well, that's, that's kind of another thing um, to consider. Yeah, I think, I think land back will just be a whole other thing that will pay someone more qualified than our team to talk about on yeah. this show um because yeah that's definitely you know like all of the things we've we've discussed they deserve their own deep dives by people that are uh not me robert and chris um let's see is is there any kind of resources either books or stuff online that you would recommend for people wanting to learn more about this history um, and then any kind of ways to, I don't know, I guess show support in these, in these kind of like efforts that are going on. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, so in terms of resources and reading, um, I have read Lorenzo Veracini's um, settler, book on settler colonialism. Um, that's really helpful when you're trying to understand that framework um, in terms of getting to know kind of more of the basics of like current um, issues impacting tribes. Um, the Na National Congress of American Indians does a lot of work on the federal level. Um, if you want to talk more about um, kind of lived current lived experiences of American Indians, there's Illuminatives. Um, and getting more in, involved in those as well. I think that they have some tips, but I would recommend um, everyone getting more familiar with the land that they are on currently, the tribes within their state and what they can do, um, not just on the local level, but on the state level to support tribal sovereignty. Um, because a lot of issues, uh, for instance, I worked um, on, this, on the state policy level in Washington and in Montana, and both of those have a significant amount of tribes. Um, but you have a lot of legislation that's trying to happen that infringes on tribal treaty rights. And the thing is, is um, as ugly as it may be to say, but sometimes voices of... <laughs> non-Indigenous peoples are listened to more within those um, contexts. So you need to get more involved on, on those levels, um, what sort of like ad, um, nonprofit organizations um, work with your tribes or and what sort of issues are impacting tribes. And again, these are all going to probably be surrounding tribal sovereignty. So maybe it's um, fishing access, hunting rights, et cetera. Um, I think that's a really good way to make some more um, tangible change to feel like you're doing yeah. something to support tribal sovereignty while you're also educating yourself and making sure that their voices are at the forefront. And that's also applicable to the federal level, um, especially with, as you already said, like stop line three in Minnesota contacting your legislators, et cetera, et cetera. And I think also with, when it comes to one of, one of the larger issues besides um, environmental justice for indigenous peoples, such as pipelines, you have right now missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, so looking, in, looking into that um, a little bit more and who you can support, who's addressing those issues along with um, there is a, another movement with boarding schools right now, um, because there's been a lot of, um, bodies of young children, um, that have been uncovered. And this is not an issue that happened a long, long time ago. Like for instance, my grandmother went to a boarding school. Um, there's still schools that, um, although they're not called boarding schools right now that were boarding schools, but are still in operation under different names, et cetera. Um, so kind of familiarizing yourself with those histories. And then also there's a um, national, uh, I think it's called the National Boarding School Healing Coalition based out of Minnesota and um, looking into them and supporting their efforts. 
um, with this issue is also a good place to start. Um, is there anywhere that uh, people can find you online? Yes. <laughs> I don't I don't really use um, social media that much. Good for um, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I try not to. I don't know if I want people to find me. Okay. Do not. Yeah. <laughs> no don't, don't do it. <laughs> they probably better, can't find me. It's better but... not. It's, yeah. it's it's better that people don't find anyone online. It's better we're all just just po- posting into the void. There's nothing, no, mm-hmm. just just the void. Well, that uh, that is, I think, gonna wrap up what we uh, have today. Chris, do you want to close us out with a funny bit? Uh, light your local gas station on fire. Wow! Well, <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> Killing it here. <laughs> Oh my god. Jeez, <laughs> wow. All right, goodbye everybody. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and game sense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of Melon Leaf stem cell technology. It's Melon Leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. What's terrible, my me? This is It Could Happen Here, a podcast about collapse, and that's appropriate because everyone's faith in me uh-huh. as a colleague has collapsed today uh-huh. as the result of a series <laughs> of horrific clusterfucks on my part. I'm late to the meeting. I accidentally left the meeting when they started recording. Just a just a complete fucking shit show. Yeah. Speaking of shit shows. My co-host, Garrison Davis. Oh, How are you, Garrison? <laughs> thank you. I, I'm the one that saved this. I had to send the guest the Zoom call. I know. I know. I, I'm not even supposed to be on this call. No, you're not. You're not even supposed to be working today. That's not true. Well, yeah. <laughs> but you're not but, on this call. Not on this call, but here I am, saving, well, saving the pod. This is enough. Always. This is enough witty banter. This is a daily podcast. Yeah. All right. And now let's bring on our guest for today, Monsignor... Alex Newhouse. Alex, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, you... Thanks for having me. I feel like I was pulled in off the street, just like <laughs> bundled into a van, and then yeah, yeah. We, uh, you know, how people used to get like Shanghai, like like captured by Alleg- uh, allegedly. allegedly, allegedly, and and forced to work on 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 boats in like San Francisco and whatnot. We do that with podcasts. I mean, that is actually most of what I've done to the people mm-hmm. who work on your podcast. I've, I think yeah. I've ha- I think I've had everyone from your show on our show now, and it has mm-hmm. been very much like I'm just pulling them on a string. Speaking of which, Alex, you are one of the hosts of the Terrorism is Bad podcast, a, a very uh, 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 controversially named podcast, uh, and you work at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey Center of Terrorism, Extremism, and Counterterrorism Center on, not not of. That would be a different center. Very important, very important uh, middle word there. We're not not bringing you on to talk about how to make explosively formed (laughs) penetrators. (laughs) Not this time. (laughs) Not this time. (laughs) That is someone else, yeah. Yeah, But you are also also an actual games journalist. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. I got my start in this weird space via Gamergate. How do you feel about ethics (laughs) in the game journalism industry, Alex? Uh, It's always been fine like mm-hmm. people right, yeah, that's, lost that's their shit cool. yeah yeah all right anyway that's the end of that yeah i do want to actually start there alex because it, you and i both have something in common which is that we we got our start writing in a field that's wildly different from consulting with like governments on terrorism <laughs> <laughs> like for me it was i wanted to write like dick jokes on the internet and i just like stumbled into a bunch of isis propaganda that most people weren't aware of and and that started me like lecturing at universities and shit and and for you it was Gamergate so I'm interested in kind of you telling your story a little bit to start us off 
Yeah, so I was a uh, I was during undergrad. I interned every summer at Gamespot, a video game website you may have heard of. Uh, it's one of the two big ones, along with IGN. Um, and when I was doing that, I was so this was 2014, 2015, 2016, like right in the at the beginning stages of of GamerGate really popping off. And uh, what ended up happening is a lot of the the people I worked with, a lot of my colleagues and friends, were just in the blast zone. They were just targeted by the absolute onslaught of of harassment. Um, and I just out of curiosity started looking into some of those people who were who were targeting my friends and colleagues and it ended up being a lot of the people that we're still talking about today. Uh, you know, it all, all rolls back up to the Breitbart, uh, metropolitan area, if you will. Yeah. And, um, I don't know what, do, uh, the, the thing that made me want to, I mean, obviously I've been aware of your work for a while, but the thing that made me want to specifically bring you on is you started on a new project to create like a video game that, that will hopefully have an ability to help like de-radicalize people. And I'm, I'm not entirely certain like of the details of the project, but I think it's a fascinating project because as as you know all too well, a lot of this stuff started in gaming, not as a result of anything specifically about gaming, but the kind of like socialization that occurs in those spaces and the kind of like different communities. I and mean, it's been like we have going back to the 90s evidence of like different Nazi groups on the early internet, like talking about like these are specific, these specific groups and subcultures that, you know, will have an easier time radicalizing and whatnot, but... Yeah, I'm interested in kind of what actually is going on with this project um, and and how you think it's going to look at this stage. I understand it's pretty early in development right now, so I'm not expecting like, you know, an E3 walkthrough. <laughs> yeah, our E3 slice of life demo. Uh, I wish mm -hmm. we had that. Um, yeah, we won a grant from uh, DHS and FEMA, uh, their, their terrorism prevention grant program this year. Uh, we just got awarded it like literally two weeks ago, so have not even started work on it at all. But the project will be a collaboration between my center and a nonprofit games development company called the iThrive Foundation. Uh, and basically what we are going to do is like build digital scenarios, digital narratives uh, that can be engaged with uh, within classroom settings. So we're targeting high schools for rolling this out. Uh, and the idea is that we're going to give students the ability to take on roles that empower them to better understand how extremism and radicalization work as mechanisms. Uh, which will hopefully the idea is that it will it will improve resilience and you know civil integrity and all those fun buzzwords um, within within high school communities. So we're not necessarily trying to de-radicalize already radicalized people, but we're really trying to build community awareness, community resilience to to radicalization pathways. I mean, this is something I think about constantly because I, I get asked this a lot. You know, I'll get, I'll get emailed questions from people, sometimes as much detail as like, hey, I'm like a teacher and here's some things this kid in my class has said or something he put in an essay. And I'm like, I'm growing really concerned about him and like, I, I what do I do? And my usual answer is you know, there's a couple of people who I uh, respect that I'll try to direct them to, but I, I don't. I'm pretty good at how people get radicalized. It's something I spend a lot of time studying. I don't know how how you i have trouble figuring out how to break down these pathways because like right, right the the default for a lot of people and for a lot of time has been well you deplatform them right you um you get them off of whatever and there's there's i do certainly think there's there's utility in that but there's also you know the toothpaste tube effect the fact that when you you squash these popular areas where they're able to spread then they they filter off into increasingly isolated communities they develop new terms they find out ways to hide it and that actually increases you know, it may re it may reduce the number of people who get radicalized, but the people who remain just get more and more extreme because they're even more isolated from, you know, everyone else. And I don't know. How do you 
do how do how do you break that de- that radicalization cycle? Like how do you how do you stop that shit before it gets you know to a tipping point? Yeah, I mean, in in general, I'm with you. I'm pretty skeptical of uh, a lot of de radicalization strategies. Uh, and it's it's like an incredibly difficult task to to yeah. pull someone out who's already going down these pathways. And then, like you said, it's also an incredibly difficult task to make sure that when you are disrupting the radicalization networks, that they aren't just disappearing off to some other corner of the Internet, mm-hmm. which we know they're doing. Like one of the yeah. reasons why we're we're working with a video game video game company is over the last few years, we've noticed a big migration into video game platforms. Uh, especially big social-based video game platforms like Roblox and Minecraft, which are ne- like not even remotely pe- prepared to deal with, you know, very well-developed, sophisticated radicalization networks. They have moved over there, uh, both for organization and radicalization reasons. Um, since mainstream companies have started taking more of an interest in deplatforming them, uh, and so we are ending up like pretty wildly unprepared for this sudden onslaught of extremists being right in front of kids as they're playing games or you know teenagers or even young adults so our idea essentially is to use that language the same language that extremists are trying to adopt via the structures of video games via the sort of interactivity there to better communicate uh the the impacts of extremism what it looks like how to identify it and hopefully how to avoid getting you know falling into the traps that are laid uh, for for unsuspecting people, one of the issues, and I, I'm curious your thoughts on this because we 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 talk a lot about, like I think people have become increasingly aware of how bad Facebook in particular is as a problem with this. It's it's really where we owe a lot of the Boogaloo movement to, and now this stuff is coming out about like the data Facebook has had on just, and this isn't this isn't this is adjacent to radicalization, yeah. um, the mental impact that it's been having on teenagers, right? Like the the just how bad it is. For people, and um, I'm wondering, like, how do you scale this stuff? I guess is the question. Like, how do you actually, how do you make the social internet less dangerous? Yeah, I mean, that's that's going to be extremely tough, and we are even starting very, very small. Like, we're building, yeah. we're building on a narrative platform to target three high schools right now. Yeah. Um, but the hope is that ultimately, what we can do is build a tool set and and a platform, like literally a, a game platform. That can be used by high school teachers and high school classes throughout the country uh, or throughout the world. Um, the idea will be to hopefully make a new sort of uh, package of different methods and interactive experiences that can be reused into the future. But it is one of the big open questions that we will hopefully come to some sort of answer for throughout the project about how do we actually scale this up. Um, but, you know, in general, it is again like one of the biggest open questions right now. Um, one of the reasons why I'm sc- so skeptical of a lot of DRAD and CVE uh, techniques is they try to go for scale of uh, effectiveness um, when in reality, one of the best and only de-radicalization pathways that we know of involves people that you know and I know going out and meeting with these people one-on-one and having intensive, frequent communications with them. So um there's as far as we know there's not a good answer right now this is a huge place of research right now because we just straight up do not understand how to scale up um radicalization prevention and de-radicalization i mean and and what you know what you're trying to do in like reaching kids in high school in something that's meant they're meant to be consuming while they're in school is even such an additional challenge because i think you and i are both young enough to at least remember that like 
almost nothing that you put before kids in that context in a school gets through. I, I can I, I can think about like anti-drug programs and stuff when I was a kid and how ineffective yeah. they were. There was I had one one effective anti-drug like speech by a teacher and it was just a teacher who whose son was part of this this there was this one night in Plano where like six kids OD'd on heroin. It was it, there was a big Rolling Stone article about it. It was a very famous moment. And her son was one of the kids who nearly died and she was and, and she like just explained like physically what happened to him and begged us not to do heroin. And that actually did stick with me. I've never never shot up anything. <laughs> um, but, you know, like the, the a lot of it doesn't work. And I think part of why it was, it's this thing I talked about when I, I tried to explain, like, why ISIS propaganda was so effective. It's the um, it feels more authentic than the yeah. than the counter narrative. Right. The counter narrative because it's it's usually focus grouped. It's coming as the result of like some sort of government initiative. A bunch of people working together. It, it feels focus grouped as opposed to there's something inherently more compelling about something that just like feels like somebody who really gave a shit cares a lot put yeah. this thing together even if it's terrible and i that strikes me as a really because if you're going to be scaling something and trying to reach a lot of people it's going to have to be something that is put together at scale by an organization and how do you I mean, I, I know this must be on your mind as you're trying to figure out how to craft this thing. I'm just interested in your thoughts on that, really. Yeah. I mean, that exact challenge challenge is what led us to proposing the project project that we are. So the idea behind it or the the uh, impetus behind what we do, what we proposed is um, the exact problem of students just don't listen to people in what, whether that's anti-drug programs or mm -hmm. anything like that. Often my uh, my. Uh, feeling about it is they are often resistant to it because it's very negative. It's very, don't do this, don't do this. Um, setting up boundaries for for uh, kids and adolescents to act within. It's all very declaratory, very com you know mm -hmm. commanding. Um, there's no there's no sense of treating kids like people who have control, who have interests, who have motivations. It's all attempting to restrict them. And so the idea is that we're going to attempt to build a game platform that actually empowers students to operate within roles that have control, that that have something to say, to give them voices, to give them uh, and that sort of feeling of being a, an established um, person within a within a certain scenario. Um, the way that I've been thinking about it is that we're basically merging video games with like the structure of a model UN conference or something like that. Um, hopefully, we'll be a little less nerdy than model UN conferences. But mm -hmm. that's the idea of giving people power to make decisions uh, and and treat them like actual, you know, operating humans. Yeah, I uh, I'm wondering, do you have any kind of models that you're looking at when you think of like something that you see as as kind of worth? I don't know, emulating maybe the wrong word, but like, oh, these people, I think, got it right. And, and this was effective, like, or is this really a situation where you feel like. We're kind of in the fucking wilderness here. There's not a lot of great models for what's effective. We are very much in the wilderness. Yeah, um, we're <laughs> that, that be was pulling, kind of what I was yeah, expecting you to say. Yeah. It, like so much of CVE and DRAD work over the last ten years has been directly towards trying to essentially recreate the like the the dare model or the anti drug model, just in mm. a different field. Um, and so we're going to be pulling from scenario builders and like model UN and debate and like all of these different models that seem to at least work to get kids engaged with like operating in that sort of situation. But it is going to be pretty, I mean, at least from what I understand, it's going to be pretty new. We're going to be out there really flying blind for a lot of it. Um, but 
we will, you know, we have a, a pilot phase built in to try to beta test this with with um, some of the students. We're incorporating students and instructors in the actual creation development stage. So that'll be a, another hopefully good part of this. We'll we'll give some students experience with the game development process, um, which I think will help engage them as well. Yeah, um, no, that actually, so. yeah, that, that strikes me as a particularly good idea of like giving and also just giving them some agency. So it's not yeah. like this is a thing that you are forced to consume. Like this is right. a thing that you can like learn something from. I think that's that's very important. I'm interested in how you see how you see this because like again we kind of both got in around the same time gamergate is when i started paying attention to radicalization too how do you think it's changed since then how do you think like the nature of of how particularly like younger people are being radicalized has changed and i i guess i'm also interested because I, I get the feeling that back then it was mostly younger people getting radicalized and that's no longer the case right. you know, i'm just as we're talking i just came across a video on twitter of a group of anti-vax protesters chasing parents and children away from an elementary school and screaming at them that they're raping their kids with a vaccine. So clearly the problem has expanded, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, I, I, one of the things that keeps me up at night is when we start, if, you know, knock on wood, we are able to roll this out to more schools, we're going to run into some probably very resistant parents who have been oh, heavily yeah. radicalized. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, the big one is like what you said, like the, the radicalization demographics have vastly expanded. Uh, mm -hmm. to incorporate so many more different types of people, so many more ages and even ethnicities and genders. Um, but what we do know is that the hardcore of the of the violent extremists are still targeting adolescents. Um, we know accelerationists, for instance, hang out and try to uh, essentially blackpill a bunch of teens, especially autistic teens, especially teens with mental health issues, uh, and bring them into a more violent, more accelerationist posture. Um, so, I mean, I think that has sort of stayed constant throughout all of this. One of the big, uh, changes has been platforms, you know, 10 years ago, it was much easier for a neo-Nazi to operate openly on YouTube or Facebook, but that has thankfully changed. Um, but they have spread out into, uh, like I mentioned earlier, they've spread out into video games. They spread out into other sorts of uh, platforms where the social aspect isn't necessarily the first part of the platform, but rather a secondary aspect to it. Uh, and they try to engage um, adolescents on their own turf on, you know, in a Roblox game or in a in a video game forum out there. Mm -hmm. It's not even enough to say it feels like the the task of reducing radicalization or, or not not even mention pulling it back, just stopping the process feels not just like whack-a-mole, but like whack-a-mole when you're surrounded by moles. Um, and I guess that is the thing that keeps me up at night the most too, is that like the problem has gotten because of how social media scales, I think in large part has gotten so much worse than it ever was. And the, I, I see these crowds of adults, you know, assembling in, you know, places like Los Angeles, uh, showing up outside of schools to harass people. And like, I don't know what, I don't know what to do do about that like part of me thinks um part of me thinks that the only effective long-term answer is to mobilize a larger number of people to show up to you know not necessarily confront those people but make them make them feel outnumbered and maybe they'll stop and that'll start a process where they 
they alter their thinking. Like I'm thinking kind of back to some aspects of the civil rights movement here, right, where you would have these people show up at schools just try to stop integration and whatnot. And they would be opposed often by by larger groups. So they would see the size of the marches in the street. And like, I don't know, I don't even know if it works that way anymore. If like knowing that, you know, 10 to 1 people think your stance on vaccines is stupid and they're willing to show up to like yell at you if that would do anything. But I don't know what, I don't know what's going to do. Like, I'm, I guess I'm asking you like, <laughs> <laughs> Can you have you figured this out? Because I don't know what the <laughs> fuck to do. Um, but it's 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 not you can't we can't close our obviously you're someone who's trying to confront it directly, but we certainly can't keep ourselves like just pretend it's not going to get worse. Right. No, totally. And, um, you know, I often feel like it's almost too far gone. And, mm -hmm. you know, frequently I worry that we've already passed some sort of, you know, point of no return on radicalization ex exploitation of social media but one of the other things i've also recognized is that when you're in a space that is dedicated to one type of confronting uh one one method of confronting extremism very often they will forget about or deprioritize or or even ignore the other types the other methods and one of the tasks before us, I think, before we throw up our hands and, and give up is trying to tie together all of the different facets of, of resisting extremism from mm -hmm. the, the hardcore confrontational doxing and showing up in the streets counter protesting, which I think is an essential part of it, to um, working as hard as we can to try to get tech companies to, to realize what's going on. Uh, and then also on the educational side, like what we're doing with this with this project. Um, some of the things that make me at least a little bit optimistic is that there is obviously inertia, both intentional and unintentional at tech companies, but frankly, they are still extremely far behind in understanding how to even do deplatforming on their platforms, how to even identify who to deplatform. Like the majority of tech companies are still making content moderation decisions on a piece by piece basis, specifically looking at content. Mm -hmm. Very few of them are doing actor analysis. Very few yeah. of them are doing social yeah. network analysis. Very few of them are looking at even the links between like off-platform violence and on-platform content. Like it's yeah. the they are still very much in the stone ages when it comes to content moderation. And uh, that's so so key. When I think about like what actually would reduce the harm that these platforms are doing at scale, it's focusing on the actors. Um, and, and not just like the individual actors, which is part of it, but the patterns that let you tell whether or not someone is like that same actor who's kind of like putting on a different hat, so to speak. Um, are you aware of like, is there any, I, I, cause I, I have not seen that happen yet. I, I haven't seen Facebook take that seriously. Um, and I have, I have spent some time there. Uh, I haven't seen, certainly haven't seen Twitter take that seriously. Um, I, I haven't really seen, I don't believe TikTok is like they're, 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 they're just, um, like you said, they're going after, they're taking it on a piece by piece basis, which is never, there's too many pieces. That's never going to handle the problem. Right. Yeah. I mean, TikTok is crawling right now. They're in their infancy. Um, mm -hmm. they don't, they don't have a data sharing, uh, any sort of data sharing system set up for, for yeah. researchers or anything like that yet. I, I've seen optimistic signals. So I think Facebook's approach to QAnon and Boogaloo movement over the past year has been probably the best, the the most positive development we've seen on the content moderation front because they took an actual network-based approach to it. Mm -hmm. It was hamstrung by a variety of different policy decisions, but 
it was still from like a from like a, a mechanics standpoint the most sophisticated one any of the companies has actually talked about openly uh and youtube has followed in their path they've started taking more network approaches um they they've taken uh moderation action against q and on on a similar basis but the the thing that i want tech companies to start looking at is applying a lot of the techniques they're using for disinformation and, and info, info ops work to extremism and radicalization it's very similar but right now it seems to be just easier politically or just they are further along with doing the large-scale network analysis approaches on disinfo um like twitter is doing a lot of that but it's all on information operations and, and yeah. authentic info yeah as opposed to yeah people yeah and i uh, I, I worry too because I'm paying attention to kind of you know you have this whistleblower from Facebook and how that's being politicized, right? How the right is kind of go, coming at this from a they're trying to say uh, like as Ben Shapiro said they're trying to to um to censor uh, alternative media voices and the like. And I I worry tremendously about the politicization because number one it means that at best we've got like three years to get something together before, you know, who knows who's winds up in the white house next. But also if it's just this thing of like veering between who gets, who gets uh, paid attention to um, based on like what is politically viable for Facebook, we're never going to solve the problem. And I, I, I think I agree with you for the most part on the Facebook's response to the Boogaloo movement. I mean, I, I guess I think the problem was that by the time they developed a, a functional set of responses to it, um, it had metastasized. It had grown. It had grown strong enough to exist on its own, and a lot of people had gotten exposed. What do you think is the actual is reasonable to expect in terms of response time from these people? Because w with Boogaloo stuff, it was about I, I want to say about three months. Maybe well, no, it was more like five. It was about five months that it had from like December of of 2019 was when I started really noticing it, and then like. You know, May at the when when stuff really kicked off with the George Floyd protests is when you started to see action taken the, the tail into May. Yeah. So I, I guess that, that I, I'm wondering, like, what is the half life of this shit? Like, how quickly do you need to to crack down on this stuff before it it it, it gets to be impossible to contain? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the the biggest limiting factor on the effectiveness mm -hmm. of, of uh, content moderation in general, but also in, in particular, these new mm -hmm. approaches that the tech companies seem to be experimenting with. Um, my understanding is that part of the so I'm not I'm not defending Facebook by any stretch. I'm not here to yeah, yeah, be yeah. the Facebook uh, rallying crew. But my understanding is that they literally did develop an entirely separate approach to taking down bo the boogaloo movement so that explains at least a little bit of the delay mm -hmm. but uh hopefully you know my optimistic side hopes that they'll be able to apply it more quickly in the future um the problem is a lot of the network approaches that have been developed are have like these very high thresholds for attribution so it has to be like a, a dedicated network that has crossed the line into criminal activity and is actively calling for you know political violence on like mm -hmm. a network level and that like we all know that that is that is like the end goal or the end yeah. point in, in it's the terminal at that exactly stage. right like that is the terminal point of the development of these extremist networks so you know we're one of the one of the things that we're working on is trying to figure out a way to convince tech companies that you can and should take action earlier before it reaches that point uh, and it's going to be a mosaic of things. It's going to be combining violent extremism with hate speech, with 
even like CSAM child exploitation stuff with um, all of, you know, criminal, criminal conspiracy network policies, all of those things need to be sort of thought of as pieces in a single big overarching umbrella that we can use to take down networks earlier on. But, you know, it's a, it's a, that's one of the biggest tasks is just convincing them to think about it much, much earlier. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's, I think most of what I wanted to get into today. Is there anything else you really wanted to like, kind of talk about while you're here? Um, those are the, those are the big ones for sure. Uh, we will hopefully have more to talk about very soon and how we're approaching this project. Um, it's going to be a, a pretty big project and it'll take two years to, to implement, but, um, we're pretty excited to see what comes out of it. Yeah. Um, well, people can find you, uh, on Twitter at, it's just at Alex Newhouse, right? Alex B. Newhouse. Alex B. Newhouse. Yeah. At Alex B. Newhouse. Um, they can, uh, check out, uh, where you work at, at C-T-E-C-M-I-I-S. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see, we'll, maybe we'll have you back on when you, um, uh, when you, you, you actually put out the, the game, but I'm really interested in looking at that. Oh yeah. What was the last thing you brewed? Oh, I brewed a red IPA and I'm currently brewing three gallons of apple cider. Oh, nice. We just, um, we juiced 10 gallons of apples in pairs that I just kegged after oh, uh, almost four weeks of fermentation that I'm I know I've been, excited. I've been looking at, I've been looking at apple mills, like, uh, apple presses and yeah. like, I should, I should just buy one. And we found one to rent. Um, so it was just like, I don't know, 30 bucks for the day. Uh, and we just gathered up all the apples on property, but it's, it was rad. Definitely very That's soothing. Amazing. Yeah, we were juicing all of the apples the day that um, Tiny uh, got shot at uh, that protest in <laughs> Olympia. So it was just like looking at the Twitter saying there's been a shooting at a protest and being like, yeah, I'm glad I'm not working today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah I'm glad I'm not working today. Just having an idyllic <laughs> afternoon pressing apples. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is a more enjoyable yeah. use of my time right now. <laughs> all right. Well, Alex, thank you so much for being on. Uh, thank you for what you're doing. And uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, go with, you know, whoever, whatever deity. Up to you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER me Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. It could happen here. Might is possibly. Anyway, I'm Robert Evans. Uh, you know who I am because you're listening to this show, unless you stumbled upon this, having never heard of the internet before, in which case uh, this is a show about how things are kind of falling apart and uh, where we also try to talk every now and then about how to maybe put them back together a little bit. My co-host is Garrison Davis. Garrison, say hello to the people. Hello, people. I'd also like you to say hello to Sean. Hi, Sean. Yeah, there's a Sean somewhere out there listening. There's probably a few Seans, yeah. At least one or two. Uh, Garrison, what are we, what are we, what are we, what, what, what are we? Well, we're, we're finally doing something I've been wanting to do for a while, is branching off into kind of covering different parts of like media and culture um, that kind of relate to all of these topics. Um, I know both both me but both me a little bit and, and Robert more so have worked for or have have written for um, like an online investigative uh, journalism website called Bellingcat that deals in open source um, like research. And one of the things that we're big fans of at Bellingcat, I've talked with a few of the other people, is a game called Her Story, which is a, a a video game that has maybe one of the better better depictions of kind of open source um, investigations. Uh, it's it's a it's a very it's a very good game. I I highly recommend it. I played it a few years ago. Uh, it was lovely. And I uh, recently, uh, well, I, originally when I bought Her Story, I, I bought both that game and like uh, a spiritual sequel called Telling Lies, which I I did did not play for a while. Because I was too busy, um, and then I went to the Earth First gathering this summer, and I and I came back and I had some free time, so I played Telling Lies. And because of the content of that game, I found it really interesting. Uh, because I'm not going to spoil tons of it, because I think you should play it for yourself. And part of it is solving the mystery on your own. But but p- part of it does take place in like a green environmentalism activism setting, and it has one of the more honest depictions of environments like that. So I uh, have 
I, we, we are graced with bringing on the creator of both her story and telling lies, uh, Sam Barlow. Hello. Hey, exciting to be here. Thanks for that lovely intro. Yeah, yeah I'm, I am, I'm very excited to talk with you. These games are some of my favorite things. Um, first off, I guess I would just like to kind of talk about your inspiration for this type of detective game, because it is, it is unique to every other kind of investigative game out there. Um, and it's, you know, very much grounded in open source research, um, and like using computers in the real world. What, what kind of got you onto that kind of storytelling concept? I mean, I think there was a whole bunch of things that all kind of sparked off, um, at once. Like when I made her story, this was my first independent video game. So I'd been making video games for 10 plus years, um, working on other people's franchises, more traditional things, kind of when I started out working on like Nicolas Cage movie times and extreme sports games and all these kind of things. Um, but uh, at, at some point I got to work on the Silent Hill franchise, which is this, this very cool psychological horror franchise. And it's one of the, certainly at that point in time, it was one of the few kind of established gaming franchises that had a story that was interesting and, and took place in the real world and had characters and things. Uh, so kind of from that point, I was really digging into uh, kind of a lifelong interest in storytelling, especially what we can do with it interactively and uh, continued to be frustrated somewhat by working for these bigger publishers. Um, and at one point I worked for three years, where I was directing and writing uh, this, this big budget video game that got canceled. And that kind of gave me, a moment to kind of sit and, and think like, what, what do I want to do? Do I want to get on board another of these big video games? Uh, I was very frustrated at the kind of incremental change that you see in the kind of bigger budget video game space. It feels like things happen very slowly, which can be frustrating. So uh, I was kind of looking around. This was when like iPhones, people gaming on their iPhones and stuff was kind of starting to blow up. Uh, the fact that you could now distribute a game individually, digitally, uh, and reach an audience was sort of changing the landscape. So I kind of felt like I should get into that. And so at, at its conception, her story was was me going, what are all the things I've wanted to do that that I wasn't able to do when I was working with these bigger budgets with these more established kind of gaming templates? So from the get-go, it was um, I wanted to... to deal with characters that essentially lived in the real world, uh, yeah. which is a hard pitch. You know, if you're, if you're asking for big bucks, every video game has to essentially be about a superhero. It needs to be some kind of wish fulfillment for a, a teenage boy is, is generally what people are asking for. Uh, and the, the big thing with her story was subtext. Uh, yeah. As someone's interested in storytelling, I was always trying to push how important subtext is and the idea that there is, you know, there are layers to a narrative that you're not spelling out for the audience that they're going to extract through performance or through whatever. Um, and that was always a hard sell uh, when you were kind of dealing with the, these kind of uh, bigger companies that had a very simple idea of what their audience was. So I wanted to prove that the audience was actually smarter than we were giving them credit for. And that if you gave more control to them, if you gave more of the, the kind of work of piecing these stories together, that that would be not, not just something they could do, but which would actually be more interesting and more personable. And, um, you know, and with her story, uh, I had a kind of lifelong love of like crime fiction and a slightly more kind of gothic leaning crime fiction. 
And so I was like, right, I'm going to create a video game which is in that world and which kind of breaks a lot of the established rules of how you might tell a story. Um, and, you know, a lot of that I was pulling from, uh, you know, my love of uh, some of the more kind of avant-garde literary stuff, interesting pieces of, of kind of movies and things. But it was, it, was, it was pulling from a lot of different kind of storytelling traditions and ending up in this, this interesting place where, like you say, it's kind of uh, a game experience where you're essentially researching the story yourself and kind of putting the pieces together. Yeah, yeah. For, for people who don't know, it's like you're basically on a virtual desktop um, and you're sorting through like a hard drive full of footage. Um, and the versatility of the game and, and, you know, people learning how to use like search terms, right? J- just like people try to use like um, in, in open source, it's called like using like um, Google operators. It's the same kind of same thing. Um, but also there's like the other side of things. I think uh, Bellingcat wrote an article about your game where they like, made like a python script to scan all of the videos for specific keywords and put them into like different folders and files so it's like you can do the thing where you just like search it but you could like take this to a ridiculous level where you're like breaking the game open and doing it like you're actually like investigating this and you need to be very quick um so i think her story is is a lovely intro to this type of game concept and then for telling lies you kind of changed you changed some things with it. Um, you mm-hmm. made like, I guess, I guess like an expansion would be the way I would describe it for how it like takes the same concept and pushes it further. And I think watching these things now is very different after being like two years on zoom. <laughs> right. I'm, 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 sh- I'm, I'm sure you've heard this from other people as well. It's like, you know, because, because, because of how telling lies operates, it's like a lot of it is, well, you open the game cause you're basically cracking open an NSA hard drive. So, all of it is video from like webcams and stuff. Um, so you know, watching people talk into like their computer camera like this after spending years on Zoom definitely uh, hits harder, I guess. Um, it was it was one of those things where so when we were first working on this and conceiving of it, uh, which was I don't know uh, maybe I don't know twenty sixteen something like that. Um, there was a leap, right? And as a storyteller, you allow yourself sometimes to take that one leap that the audience yeah. will take with you. And the leap there was like, these people are using video chat a lot. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, and, and as I was starting to put it together, I would start noticing people around that time doing video chat in the street on their phones, which was was something I was not used to seeing. And I was like, oh shit, maybe this is not too big of a leap. Um, but yeah, I think, that, I think that it was Ver- the Verge or somebody ran an article that, says like telling lies is still a great game uh mid pandemic it's just real hard to play now that that like this <laughs> zoom thing is our lives I but mean, yeah, yeah that was like yeah that was that was a big thing i was interested in at the time was like what what is this doing to us what is communicating over the internet how does that change how conversations and and, and things happen and was kind of looking into some of the research there so that yeah that was wild was uh was was kind of living in that world for several years, putting the game out, and then spending two years on Zoom calls. Yeah, I mean, in, in a few ways, I think the game has aged very well because of that. And because the way people... People are more used to interacting with the computer in that format now. So when they're, you know, trying to search for these, like, hundreds of video files, I think they can understand it better. Um, so in some ways, I think it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but... Yeah, let's see. So I think we'll, I, I want to talk a bit about kind of 
the influences for kind of the surveillance aspect because like her story is filmed in like a police um, interrogation room for bas- basically basically the whole thing, whereas this pulls video footage of people like in private moments essentially. Uh, of course, this was like after like the Snowden stuff and after all of the other kind of after the you know surveillance became a, a bigger talking point. Um, but what what got you to decide you wanted to kind of revolve the game around this concept of internet surveillance and then you know different three letter agencies kind of fighting each other a little bit? So I think it, it was two things. One was in making her story uh, and making lots of decisions somewhat intuitively kind of when it was finished and, and it was a big success and I looked back on it and then kind of when a little bit of time had passed, I then had this very different relationship where I'd you know, forgotten that I was the person that had made it and so could have opinions about it. And I was really interested in how the, that game established a level of intimacy with the main character that Viva plays that you're seeing being interrogated, despite the fact that it's happening through a computer desktop, despite the fact that there's none of what traditionally you know, the, the agency you would traditionally have in a video game, which, you know, conventional logic would be that's how you would establish the, the idea that this person is alive and that you're in contact with them. Um, but the act of, like, digging into all this video footage of Viva and seeing her on screen talking essentially at you created this this interesting amount of intimacy that a lot of people responded to. So I was like, well, that's one of the things that is interesting to me to take further because it's it's very rare that a video game creates this sensation of, of kind of intimacy or of, of getting close to or understanding people. And then it was uh, Snowden. Um, I think it was one of the the early reports um, from, from all the various things that came out via Snowden. Um, there was a particular um, operation in the UK, which I think was called Optic Nerve or something. And yeah, the yeah. idea there was that they were spying on everyone's internet traffic. And I think it's a little bit easier to do that in the UK than it is elsewhere. And uh, this one particular operation, I remember there was a PowerPoint slide that was leaked that was like their internal presentation, um, which (laughs) proved that like any leaked government PowerPoint will be the worst PowerPoint you've ever seen. Like the the clip art and just (laughs) terribleness, right? Um, But in this scheme, what they did, and this blew my mind was for a period of, I think it was two years, Every single video chat that went through Yahoo in the UK was captured and recorded. And they had this issue, which I think is, if you want to talk about surveillance kind of post uh, 9-11, the the big problem with surveillance and and the extent to which it's now used is like, what do you do with all this data? Like, it's it's, it's just too much. So they, um, they, they were capturing all this Yahoo video chat and attempting to, you know, add the metadata and sort it, which is kind of interesting because that's kind of, to some extent, kind of how something like her story worked. Yeah, 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 Um, totally. And the biggest issue they had, and they put up this PowerPoint and it blew my mind, was um, 30 to 40% of all the video chat through Yahoo at this point was sexual in nature. And they were concerned about the feelings of their operatives who were doing the tagging of all this data. So they'd put their best computer minds on it and they'd come up with an algorithm which would detect an excessive amount of skin tone and would then kind of flag and silo those clips. And I just remember reading this and being like, 
What about the feelings of the people whose skin tone you're capturing, right? Like you, yeah. you, weren't, you weren't stopping to think like, why are we doing this? Should we be doing this? You're, you're, you're solving for the problem of like, how do we stop our agents seeing all this nudity? Um, and I think there was, there was a bunch of other anecdotes, right? In the Snowden stuff of people uh, alongside him, like, you know, looking through people's webcam data and stuff and in a, in a voyeuristic way and, and just this constant invasion of, of people's rights. So I think that was one of those things where I was like, oh, this is, this is like new. Like, uh, you know, we now have, you know, you, you, you worry about certain levels of like your privacy being invaded and you would certainly worry if someone was letting themselves into your house at night. But we suddenly found ourselves in this position where we have these phones that we put by our bedside at night that have cameras and microphones that are pretty much just running. Right. Uh, and capturing and, and just the extent to which now technology has transformed surveillance. Um, and that, that was really interesting to me because I, um, and a big thing I wanted to do, so, you know, I've made her story and like growing up, I loved cop shows and I particularly loved the good ones like, um, like Homicide Life on the Street in the US. There was a show in the UK called Cracker. Um, and these were like, you know, somewhat nuanced in how they sure. dealt with uh, policing. Um, but, you know, you're, you're still, you know, we're in this position now where we're starting to ask deeper questions about whether we should watch this many cop shows. Um, yeah, when they're but, like the main thing on all television all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, and that would be like when I made her story partly, I would pitched the bigger publishers like we should do equivalent of a cop show like we should do crime fiction or cop show yeah. as a video game and they would always be like nah and i would say well look this is like the evergreen you know if you're a book publisher you have a crime show you have a crime book you know if you're doing movies you're gonna have some movies with this genre yeah. it's it, it works and they would always kind of push against that so when i made her story that was in fact like the arc of of playing her story to some extent mirrors my arc in that like at the top of it, I was like, I want to make an interesting detective game and I want to deconstruct how detective stories work. And I then started to do a bunch of research where I was digging into, well, how do actual criminal investigations work? How does one interrogate a suspect? Doing all that stuff. And then I started to pull up uh, what at the time, like there was a bit, it was slightly ahead of like the true crime explosion, but there was starting to be stuff on YouTube and in various places where footage from real investigations was online. And it was starting to get a bit weird and interesting and in that people were kind of vicariously watching these things. And um, yeah, that uh, raised all sorts of questions. They were trying to but, piece together their own kind of conclusions based on these leaked or sometimes officially released interview segments. Yeah. And it, and there was one um, in particular, I got really into the Jody Arias case, which yeah. is like a, and, and the way the media spun that story and, and just really dug into, like, Oh, there's like sex and murder and Mormons. And there's this beautiful blonde woman who now, when she goes to court is, has gone brunette. And, and they were endlessly talking about on cable news, like her appearance and, and setting her up as this kind of femme fatale kind of, uh, ice maiden, um, on the flip I mean, side of this, I think there's like the the thing with um, the making the murderer documentary, which uh -huh. I think I have some issues with how they handle the main guy, but particularly how they showed the totally immoral interrogation tactics used mm. on used on Brandon the kid. 
Um, and that really cracked that whole thing open, being like, yeah, the way the police are interrogating minors without like, that was, without lawyers is shocking. And I mean, that was that was that was part of this transition for me was 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 yeah going into her story with like the hero of this is the detective. It's Andre Brower on Homicide Life on the Street. It's the genius detective that's going to come in there and crack this case. And the more I dug into in cases like Jody's, where um, there were various you know. Um, aspects to that case she definitely did murder uh, her lover but there are lots of questions around whether the relationship itself was particularly healthy um and by the end of it like all of my sympathy was with jody not with the interrogator who you watch it and you realize that like the reason this person is in this situation is because their life has gone very badly yeah and the reason for that is everything that has happened in their life prior to this and they've never spoken to anyone about any of this stuff. And suddenly they're in this room with the homicide detective who's like, hey, you can talk to me. I'm the first person that's going to sit and listen to you. And, and all these tricks that they use to just get people talking. And it becomes very intimate and becomes kind of like therapy session. Uh, but by the end of it, so, so for me, like the hook of her story is, oh, you get to solve a murder. But really by the end of it, it's like a character no yeah the, your absolute, empathy yeah. should entirely be with her and it's less about uh seeing justice done right so i even but even coming away from that i was like i still feel slightly uncomfortable with with kind of having made this thing that is reveling in how much fun it is to be involved in the police work or whatever um and so i was definitely thinking about the snowden stuff thinking about that aspect and the extent to which technology has just so empowered policing in general to the point where it's, there's this great, um, like one of the core themes that I wanted to dig into in Telling Lies was that when you see people try and defend this stuff and defend policing in general, it's, they, they try and set it up so that you basically have, they talk in terms of families and and very close relationships so they're kind of like well the government is your parent and they're trying to look after you and you understand as a parent you're going to sometimes uh invade the privacy of your children or sometimes you're going to inhibit their freedoms because you're trying to protect them and we all understand that and that's part of being human and that's all that's happening here with government right we're trying to protect you from the big bad the evil i saw like <laughs> there was a, some tweet from the NYPD the other day that was like uh, you'll be cut, you'll come running when evil is on your doorstep. Uh, <laughs> someone was saying something that helps. And, and, and for me, once you, you take that understanding of, of how people relate directly to each other, how families work, the second you scale it to the size of government, it breaks like yeah. that. You cannot extend that metaphor. And then when you add in tech, um, you know, the extent to which, uh, you know, privacy has been degraded of our freedoms um you know when you start just blanket looking for crime right uh you start creating all the systemic issues that we have just suddenly become amplified um so that that to me was kind of interesting um yeah thought, well you know here is like a, a means to explore that and i like one of the things that was interesting to me about her story that in retrospect was uh, the extent to which it was about watching video, which seems like a dumb thing to say, but like the choice to use real video uh, kind of inspired by watching all these interrogation 
pieces of footage from Jody and people, um, you know, was was kind of made as, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And I just kind of got on with it. But then looking back, I was like, oh, well, it's interesting because people talk about this game as being an interactive movie, but it's nothing like a movie. No, not at and, all. And, and it's not how movies work. It, it just happens that it, it uses a, a it, you know, video camera. Only similarity is that it has live action footage. That's it. Yeah. So I was like, I, I really want to go even further into that texture. And so I was just thinking about, and, and when I was starting to do my research, like the idea of surveillance and and the commonalities between like classic old school surveillance, i.e., you know, someone sat in a car with some binoculars watching someone. Yeah. And, and modern surveillance, the, the commonalities are that it's quite boring. Right, there's just a lot of sitting and watching. It's a lot of doing nothing. Yeah. Right, and but out of that, and when you kind of read the first-hand accounts of the people doing the surveillance uh, or some of the depictions of this in media, like there's a level of intimacy that you get with the person you're surveilling, right? Um, Where you know, if you're just sat watching the minutiae of someone's life, if you're listening to a bug in someone's kitchen and just hearing all the just everyday shit in their lives, uh, or if you are you know, watching them through some kind of technology. Um, you're just spending all this time with them. And that's like a, that's like a very non-cinematic thing. It's just like this, that minutiae and the time stretching out of just being present with somebody. And that was kind of interesting to me of uh, just kind of putting you in that headspace and, and kind of thinking about uh, what that means. Um, I think that totally gets through because of the way you break up the conversations and telling lies. You have to sit and watch these characters as they're just doing nothing for sometimes like, like over five minutes. They're just like sitting there. Um, and you do get like very intimate with these characters, but it almost, but like in a very like creepy way yeah. where, where you like, you feel like I shouldn't be here, uh, which is yeah. kind of the general was, feeling of telling lies. It was lies. really interesting. Cause I like some people would have a very, and, and this was, you know, completely again, like, trying to process how I felt watching the, like the, the, the videos of all the various police interrogations and stuff was like, this is fascinating because as human beings, we're fascinated by other human beings. And here is this extremely interesting, dramatic stuff where people are just really spilling their lives out. It's why true crime blew up. Right. But then you have all these moral questions around it. And obviously with telling lies, it's inspired by lots of real things, but it's fake. Uh, yeah. And you're watching actors act this stuff but still some people would have this real visceral reaction of like i shouldn't be watching some of this stuff and and i'd be like i mean you you can it's like you that was that was where it became really not cinematic to me was like you know if you're watching a uh you know a noir film or a you know a thriller and you have you know or even like the 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 thing for the domestic stuff for me was, you know, you could watch I don't know, a sitcom, you're watching any a, a normal sitcom, and the husband and wife are sat in bed chatting. At no point do you feel like I shouldn't be here because you're yeah. in the the kind of classic Hollywood invisible camera setup. You're this, you know, you have permission to be there as the the invisible camera spectator, and it doesn't feel as weird as it would if you were hiding in the closet of this couple's bedroom. Um, so, with the setup on telling lies, you you immediately feel like oh. Like this, I am in this position that I shouldn't be in. So suddenly all those more domestic moments become charged with like a very different vibe. Yeah, because you're watching them and you're, you're not invited. Like, right, you're, you know, you're sitting looking at this NSA hard drive and you're like, yeah, I'm not supposed to be watching this. Like this, this, this isn't, they, they never invited me into this conversation. 
Telling Lies very much feels like a much more mature game than her story. Not in terms of like has like more mature content, but like in terms of like this concept growing up and like evolving and and gaining more depth. Um, particularly because you know not only just because it has way more characters, but because you know you get to you know all of your kind of games deal with some degree of like characters lying to you and like just doing like straight lies to your face. That's kind of a, a that's my read on a lot of a lot of your games. Um, I mean, you're, the game is called Telling Lies, so um, so you definitely see like elements of of you know all of these trying to figure out what is true and what is not. I think it is interesting looking at like how easier it is to lie via these technological platforms. Um, sometimes it just like you feel like telling the truth is just so much more work, and you may as well just get through with this conversation by doing a few white lies, which then spiral out of control. Um, when you combine this with, you know, law enforcement infiltration, all this kind of stuff, it gets it gets very complicated very quickly. Um, one thing that I think you guys handled very well in Telling Lies was kind of the activism side of things. So, mm-hmm. like, when, when I, I played this game, like, almost immediately after coming back from the Stop Line 3 protests um, and, like, and, and, like, an Earth First gathering, you know, everyone there is always very... People try to be aware of surveillance and be like, okay, you know, you don't talk about certain things if there's phones nearby and stuff. So... So that whole side of things was very interesting to like play this game right afterwards because you get to see like the other side of things being like okay if the yeah, if the FBI is infiltrating this group here's you know one of the ways that they do it and like that from my perspective being you know in activism spaces for a while not just like environmental ones but you know other ones like here in Portland um, you had you handled this topic very accurately um where what kind of stuff did you pull from to kind of create these like these you know environments and interactions between people because I'm, I'm not sure if you have any experience yourself and stuff like this or if you got people on to talk like, like you talk to people who are more experienced activists what was kind of your inspiration for like you know the opposite side of things not on like the law enforcement so that was that was like one of the big initial jumping off points so uh like in terms of the the kind of real life inspirations, like the the seed of this whole thing was I'm trying to remember when this was. It was uh, I'm going to say 2009, 2010. Could be completely wrong here, but it was um, the Guardian in the UK. I think broke the story, but it was and and we've recently had some good progress in this uh, this area. But um, broke the story of this UK spy cops operation, which was. Um, a specific unit within uh, the London police whose job was to infiltrate uh, groups to surveil them from the inside. And um, it was horrific. And there were like a couple of things about it that were horrific. One of them was that like essentially their modus operandi was to find vulnerable young women on the periphery of groups, target them romantically, and then they would be the collateral to get you know, to, to, to have people then more solidly enter into these groups. And then they had like a whole, you know, stepped plan of like, once you're in, how you kind of would, would destabilize, steer these groups from within. Um, and Great. the, the thing that really made this even worse, um, was the fact that, uh, most of the groups, I think maybe all of the groups targeted, with this particular unit were uh, green activists. Um, there's this incredible, incredible, uh, like you couldn't make this stuff up. 
But um, there's a famous uh, libel case where McDonald's was suing these these two activists in the UK right because they were um, putting up flyers uh, exposing some of the practices of McDonald's. And the group that they were members of, which I think uh, at this point was called Greenpeace, but it, it was different to the, the kind of more famous Greenpeace, um, in London, um, prior to them doing this big kind of McDonald's thing, um, was losing members. And it got to a point where uh, there were so few people in this group that it would have shut down had it not been for the fact that uh, there were a large number of undercover cops in this group. So, you know, if you imagine at some point uh, there were actually more undercover cops and private security yeah. people undercover in this group than actual activists, um, which has enabled the group to continue. Uh, and in fact, the original flyer that they put out was written, uh, I forget the guy's name now, um, by one of these undercover cops. He wrote the copy for this flyer that went out and then was, you know, saw this these people dragged up in court and was this huge, you know, McDonald's won the case, but in terms of PR, it was hugely damaging to them. But yeah, that that for me was the thing that seemed even more important because because here you had this story of the state sanctioning the, you know, one of the most terrible abuses. Like essentially, you know, what was happening was um, pretty easy to, to kind of call it rape, right? There was yeah, absolutely. There were women in sexual relationships with people and thinking it was consensual, but not realizing that they, abs- this was, you know, they, what they were getting into was not what they thought it was. Uh, and, and so this was just so appalling and like from a, at just a kind of base emotional level, uh, I just, it was so hard for me to imagine the pain of, um, and these women were in relationships with these undercover officers for years. Year. And, uh, yeah. No, yeah. And like- then, and, and, and part of the modus operandi was when you were done, you had to exit and disappear. And they had this whole plan mm-hmm. where the cops would, uh, claim that they were being followed and that they were worried and then they would disappear and then they would, call from some European country and say that they'd kind of fled the country because they were worried that the, the, the cops were onto them. And then they would slowly kind of disappear. And this, you know, some of these were kind of pre-modern internet. So it was easier for someone to kind of disappear. I mean, like, but like this, and, this stuff totally happened in the green scare in the States in, you know, yeah. around, well, this ar- was, around so this 2010 was, too. This was my big question was, was this, you know, some of these cases were kind of the original inspiration. And when I started thinking about, trying to tell a story inspired by this originally it starts off and 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 is you know still in based in the UK and based on these things and, and there's a particular uh a particular flavor to it where the cops doing this work it was part of the met police who were you know that's the more kind of uh gangstery like the there's there's a real reputation that the, the met police have so these cops that were chosen for this work were the ones that were a bit more kind of macho and edgy. Um, and there was, there was, I mean, there was so much stuff to it. that was horrific. Like they would only pick, uh, cops that were married. Um, Jeez. because, uh, they felt that that, uh, gave them, uh, some level of ability to, to be sleeping with these activists and not lose themselves in it. Um, but obviously the wives didn't know what was happening. Um, and and there were just there's so many layers of this that I just thought was uh, was awful and and coming off a of first story I was like well 
I would love to tell an undercover cop story in which we 100% acknowledge that the undercover cop is bad. But yeah, like they are. <laughs> like, like, yeah. You know, because because it's such a classic trope is the undercover cop story because you get to have your cake and eat it. You get to see someone on both sides of the law. You get to, you get all the tension and thrills of it. Um, but usually, you know, whatever, the, even if the, even if the movie or the story or whatever has a bittersweet ending, the protagonist is always the undercover cop. And ultimately, because they're the protagonist, they're the one that your heart goes to, right? And the secondary characters, whether that's like the wife in Donnie Brasco or Goodfellas or something, you know, they, they basically serve as a foil to the main characters. So I was like, well, can, can we tell a story where um, we, we treat the wife and the activist who's being targeted and the other people on the periphery of this guy uh, let's think more about their perspective on this world and let's acknowledge 100% from our perspective that this is wrong. <laughs> Everything that's happening is wrong and it's not justified. And then let's just see what the impact is on people. Um, so once we started developing it and uh, when I was speaking to Anna Perna about doing it, um, I felt like, oh, we should move this to the States um, to make it feel certainly as well because the, the larger audience is American, to to kind of reiterate and, and make it feel kind of more identifiable and have it be less quaint and British. Um, so my number one question from day one was like, well, does this shit happen in the States? And, and is it, does it happen in the same way? And so we brought on a researcher who then started pulling stuff up. And, and the big thing for me was um, replacing the undercover group at the Met uh, with the FBI. Yeah, and and then I that became fascinating to me because then I start digging into the FBI and understanding their history and everything that's wrong there. Um, but yeah, immediately I start seeing all these great examples of of yeah this explicit infiltration of green groups, um, some pretty horrific cases of entrapment um, where you know people infiltrate these groups and then encourage them to do more extreme and violent things on the record. Uh, it's the point where you're listening to like recorded FBI stuff and, and you can hear the group being like, I'm not sure about that. Like that doesn't sound like a great idea, dude. And the, 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 the FBI person is there going like, well, I don't know. I, I really do think we should blow this bridge up guys. <laughs> and, and it's so obvious, like when you listen to it, which is why it's, a lot of these cases have ultimately been thrown out. But um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, I, I guess for the project reassuring to see that all this stuff was happening over here. Um, yeah. I mean, and, and, and the yeah, FBI, just, just, like the, the specific FBI agent that we kind of follow definitely feels very American and feels very real. Um, I, I, I really like the actor that you got to play him. Um, he definitely feels like a lot of kind of the law enforcement dudes who kind of handle this side of things. Um, well, that, least, was, that, was, yeah. that was definitely, that was like an FBI. He became, like the FBI-ness of it became very important to it. And it was interesting the way that the FBI, they had this brand, which is partly reinforced by the media. Like they had the great idea back in like the 40s or 50s to themselves fund and support cop shows. Yeah. So this whole idea we have through the X-Files, through pretty much every serial killer media, whatever, the idea of the FBI as being like the smartest and the best, like that's put out by them. But, but yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting to see they believe that like they are 
beyond reproach and um like they have higher standards for like you know if you want to join the fbi there is in theory this kind of moral moral check that you have to pass but let me just look into it fbi agent flipping backwards and shooting somebody when his gun falls out of his pants at a club (laughs) (laughs) well then you read about it and you're like actually the experience the lived experience and and we were it was it was so bizarre because i was like i really want to understand what it's like to be an fbi wife and um, let's find, let's reach out. And I, the research I'd done and some of the stuff we pulled up, I was like, oh, it, it, it does sound pretty bad. Like there's a, a requirement. If you're an FBI agent, you have to move every three years or something. Okay. So if you are the wife to an FBI agent, you essentially move every three years. And so you never get a chance to build your own career or to pl- make roots. And so you're generally, and, and the wage is not great, which is why they're very uh, vulnerable to, uh corruption really um so you're generally living uh there's usually kind of areas where all the fbi families live so it's this very insular world and you you start to see uh where some of these wives have come out and spoken about it they're like it's really shitty because our husbands who believe themselves to be like you know macho superheroes get to disappear for three days at a time and we can never ask where they are or what they're doing and there's this kind of internal code which you see in a lot of law enforcement right where they will cover for each other and protect each other um and you you suddenly start to see that like uh you know this this is not like and in fact uh i remember reading um so the the guy who inspired like silence the lambs the tv show mind hunter was based on him and his book um, it's this guy who was one of the early kind of uh, serial killer profiling people within the FBI. You read his book. It's a terrible book. Yeah. Uh, when I heard that Fincher was adapting, I was like, wow, good luck. Um, but it's incredible the lack of self-awareness he has. Um, this guy is so sexist and so bad. Every time he introduces a woman, it starts by from the legs up, like he's describing her. And um at, at the very end of the book, he reveals that his wife leaves him and he kind of writes as if this is a huge surprise. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's calling this from chapter <laughs> one and he has a best buddy. So like the guy who's his, who's the the kind of number two in Mindhunter on TV, um, there's like a real life version of him. And halfway through the book, his wife hires an assassin to come, a hitman to come in and kill him. And the guy just narrowly avoids it. And And the guy writing the book is... Like what an evil woman! Like oh my poor friend, and you're like, well, hang on a minute. What did your what was your friend like? Yeah, his what was, wife was what was going on? Yeah, there's 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 probably something going on there. So yeah, it was uh, yeah that that sense that which I think for me expanded beautifully to the bigger picture of like that character kind of believing that he's the good guy. Absolutely, and, you know, he's the sheriff in the west, and he's coming in and he's fixing problems and he's saving the world. Um, but and then he and slowly so, falls you know, apart. Yeah, and 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 his inability, like it's such a brittle worldview that these, yeah. these guys have. He, he is he is very once he, yeah once he's exposed to thinking that the world is maybe different, it just totally breaks him. Yeah, the, the, his specific arc I think is extremely interesting, um, and I don't want to spoil it because I think it's 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 too it's too shocking. Once you get to the final piece of his story, you're like, oh wow. Um, I think that was laid out in a really beautiful way, but it's 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 not like shocking way like oh this this like doesn't make sense. It's like oh no yeah I can see th- I can see why he's doing this. 
but it's still it's like you kind of slowly watch this guy get broken down piece by piece um as, you know because he, he starts he's very much like the superhero fbi agent he's like yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna stop these terrorists or whatever and then he just like yeah watching him progress throughout the story and you, you get to see like how pathetic he is sometimes there's a there's a great uh one of the uk spy cops um i forget his name if we were doing this three years ago i'd have had all these names in my head but he um uh so he was assigned and he was uh, he infiltrated this green group somewhere in the uk for a couple of years, had this relationship with this girl, um, was participating and facilitating. Um, the, the one detail that I loved and tried to make sure was accurate was all these cops would have a van or they would have like a, a big truck in the UK because they, they realized that like in these smaller groups, like being the transportation was like your superpower. So like if you were someone that was like, oh, I'll drive everyone to the thing, I'll get us all there because I have this big van um, that was the easiest way to just kind of make yourself useful. Um, but this guy's doing all that at some point, um, they decide to pull him and, uh, they pull him out. He returns to his wife and his normal life back in London. Um, but he, he can't go back to his normal life. And so he starts and he's done all the, the stuff of disappearing. Uh, but he just starts getting up and driving and I, maybe he's in the North of England somewhere just just shows back up and he's like, oh, I'm back guys. And they're like, oh shit, what happened? I thought you had to like disappear because people were after you. And he's like, no, it's all right. Uh, and just goes back to living as an activist. Um, and his at some point, one of his superiors notices that the mileage on his <laughs> police paid you know, vehicle is huge. And they're like, why is this guy doing so much mileage? And it's because he's driving all the way back. Uh, and, and continuing to live this life and, and inhabit this character that he set up. Um, and at some point, uh, I think he gets found out and, and it, it all goes horribly wrong because he no longer has like the fake ID and stuff that they gave him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean that, and it's like, that stuff's interesting, but then you, it was always important to never be overly sympathetic <laughs> when you see uh, them struggling uh, no, to there, there kind of is return to life. But. There is certain points where you see the FBI agent struggling because of how like smug he is. You're like, yes, he's struggling, and you like get excited when he gets like when he gets like reprimanded or he, you know, people are like mad at him for various reasons. It, it is very interesting how you like how sympathies get pulled in certain directions because like by the end of the game, you definitely have a much fuller perspective on who this guy is and how his kind of psyche works. Um, cause he is really in a lot of ways, like kind of pathetic as like a person. Um, and he like needs to like hype himself up for himself to like make himself feel like he's special. Then when that gets broken down, he just completely collapses. I guess one of the last things I want to talk about is like throughout all of your games, you have kind of a, a through line of like fairy tales. You kind of, you bring in fairy tale concepts into all of these games um, and I, I like how a lot of your games are very open-ended in some ways. I think her story being much more open-ended than, t- than telling lies in some ways. Um, and I, I really like that it can, you kind of, you can't like look up like, what is the ending of this game? It's like, no, like you have to you piece it together in your own brain. Like, and whatever you think the story is, that's what it is for you. There's no like definitive ending, especially like, especially for her story. Um, and how this combines with fairy tales, I think, is, is a really interesting way to like include like mythology into these more modern stories. What's kind of your thought process behind you know kinding, kind of including mythology and fairy tales into these more like modern stories of like you know 
people interacting with like government, law enforcement, and then just like, you know breaking down their own psyches under these high tense situations. Yeah, I mean, I think it. I think it came initially with her story of yeah, thinking about the the the, the kind of meta storytellingness of these things, right? Of the extent to which they're experiments and like how we tell stories. Um, and but a lot of times, like the myths and the the, the kind of classic stories, are people go to those right to try and understand the bigger questions, or uh, certainly like. Um, I guess partly came out of uh, the start of her story. I had like two youngish kids and you, so you're reading them all the classic stories and you realize the extent to which these are just encoding our society's values. Right. Yeah, totally. I had this incredible book that was um, that my parents got for me and I tracked down and made sure we still had when I had my kids that was called, uh, it was like folk tales of the peoples of the Soviet Republic uh, from like, the 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 early eighties and it was collected like you a lot of it was I think it was Ukrainian yeah yeah folk, folk tales and they were amazing because they were so dark like the, the I, I message bet. of each of these stories was trust nobody the rich will always win you will end up dead and and unhappy right and each story would start with the poor peasant his brother gets rich he asks for help the brother like is horrible like this is one story where. There's this brother who's like, oh, if you want some grain because you're starving, then gouge out your own eye and I'll give you some grain. And then he comes back for more grain later and he's like, gouge out your other eye. Now chop off your hand. And it's like, they're so dark. Uh, And I'm like, but this is 100% reflecting what it was like to live in that world and grow up. And you're preparing people for for the realities. So, um, you know, I think that to me was really interesting in, in... and her story tells this story that kind of to some extent grows out of this childhood. Um, and then with telling lies, definitely it was part of this idea of, um, of yeah, how Logan's character, David sees the world and relates to his part in it. And like his utter inability to realize that he's the bad guy in the story. Right. And yeah. he thinks he's the good guy. Um, and, and that was like, that was partly the, key to breaking his character. I think it was his daughter. So he has this character who's like the six, seven year old daughter. Um, and that's like, you know, he, he lets down and does horrible things to a whole bunch of people. Um, but the thing he's not going to be able to get over is knowing that he's let his daughter down, right? Knowing that at some point she will grow up and be an adult woman who, if she learns about what her father has done, will, will think less of him. And, you know, will realize that he's the bad guy in the, the fairy tale, or whatever. So um, that was like just interesting to me to, to sit him in that moment and, and have him reading those stories and see see his relationship with his daughter. Um, and yeah, I think that yeah that yeah I think element it- of just relating those things back to what are these these kind of base values and and so much of those folk tales is preparing you for the fact that people are going to lie to you and trick you and you know all those kind of uh, aspects yeah a lot of them do deal with like you know failures of trusting people and you know getting getting let down and being misled a lot a lot of those do kind of follow on these same same kind of rough templates um let's see is there anything you're working on now that you want to uh that you want to plug um and of, of course you know people should pick up telling lies her story um i have them on steam i think they are best suited to be playing on pc but you you can get them on console. You can get them on uh, iOS. 
but any anything anything upcoming? Yeah, we're working on uh, currently uh, this uh, project called Immortality, um, which is very ambitious. Uh, it's, it'll be out next year. It deals with the story of an actress uh, who only ever made three movies, uh, the latter half of the 20th century, um, and then disappeared. And uh, we have recovered footage from these three movies. Um, and it's been interesting because uh, with Telling Lies, like I've always been someone that when I think about the kinds of stories I want to tell, I've always thought that I'm not a capital P politics person, right? I tend to be interested in how people relate to each other and some of the kind of smaller politics. Um, and once I got to telling lies, it was like, oh, actually, like there is some capital P politics here that is 100% tied to all this. Yeah, totally. And so dug into that was like, well, so I want to do right by this, right? So it did involve speaking to lots of people. It did involve bringing in all the research and everything. Um, so coming away from telling lies... And and as I mean, it was making that game was insane because uh, it was during uh, Trump, right? Trump happens, and I remember going into it being like, "We're making this story about the FBI being bad." That's a pretty reasonable endpoint. And then once we hit Trump, you had all that stuff of like the good FBI agents in theory, or the yeah, you know, the yeah. FBI might be the people that bring Trump down. And suddenly they, it was 100% leaning into the myth of the FBI. And I was yeah. like, damn it. And just everything uh, getting worse. And it was like, oh, this is like so intense to be making something and speaking to some of these issues whilst this is all happening. Um, so finishing that, I was like, well, okay, for the next project, we are definitely going away from talking about real life issues and capital P politics. And then just accidentally it's become because we're talking about an actress in the 20th century and uh, what it means to make movies and uh, digging into that suddenly becomes about a whole other bunch of systemic issues. Um, so we've yeah, not, the, not managed to avoid the politics again, but it's, it's think, been a really, really interesting project. I think, I think once you crack that egg open of realizing that politics are kind of intrinsic to every story we tell, it's hard to kind of it's hard to kind of put that back in the box because once you realize you can use politics in a very interesting and complex storytelling way that still doesn't alienate a lot of audiences. It's like, oh yeah, this is just using another way to interact with the world. I think that was that was uh, one of the things that was slightly disappointing. I guess with telling lies was like when we were working on it, I'm like, we want to make sure we get these things right because like these are very important issues and there are some nuances, and so we you know we don't want to accidentally say something that is incorrect or we don't want to give people the impression that we're you know yeah 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 wrong. um so i was expecting some level of scrutiny in terms of discussing the game's themes and everything um and i guess like the the video games world is still not quite ready for that like they're quite happy to talk about the game mechanics and how this thing works and some yeah. big picture emotional responses but no one's willing to kind of uh dig deeper and we had like as the game was coming out and continues to be, you, you have the bigger name developers being like, there's no politics in our video games. As they're we're like gonna, invading we're gonna countries. Make, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're yeah. going to make a game about, <laughs> you know, you know, being a, a black ops unit, taking down communist countries. We're not going to talk about politics. We're going to, yeah, the, constantly, uh, constantly just saying it's, it's possible. They'll always say we, we both sides it, right? We'll, we'll tell both sides and let people make the decision. Yeah. And, and something that I was very, adamant was very important to me 
on, on Telling Lies was like, if we're making this game, it is not, the point of the game is not to give you a mush of information and have you decide the moral, you know, good or bad of something. Like we are going into this 100% with the assumption that we and the audience or most of the audience believe that people doing these things are wrong. And then we're just, and then I'm interested in what does it do to the people? What, what is it like to be in this world? What are the consequences, the ramifications? How does one exist and continue to live a life after having been involved in these things? Um, so for me, a political game is, it, it can't be a, a political story in any media. It, it can't be going back to first principles and pretending we're in debate club. Because that just, I think that's just, that's to influence the audience. I think you can say a political story is one which embraces and acknowledges the reality of the various power struggles and inequalities that we have. And, and then has something to say about or, or has a particular angle it wants to interrogate or something it wants to shed light on. Um, but it's very childish. And I think we're, we're definitely struggling with this in video games to be like, oh, if, if it's about politics, then it should be a, a big question and we should assume no answers, right? And it's like bullshit. Yeah, like it is complete bullshit. And, are- and it kind of, it can lead to some problematic ways, which is why you see a lot of, you know, game footage in actual, like, terrorist propaganda like with like mm. like with like nazis and white supremacist stuff they they use a lot of game footage in their propaganda videos when especially when you like both sides of these issues yeah it's uh i, I, have, a, I have a particular interest in the intersection between like politics extremism and gaming because i think gaming is very important to our modern kind of extremist ecosystem um particularly around like 4chan and like you know like mass shootings all of these things mm-hmm. play into game culture i'm not not saying games cause these events to happen because they don't but like the way they interact with these people is actually interesting. You know, this is very different from like the way like the Senate is like, oh, games are causing mass shootings because they're not. Yeah, I think it's it's it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard it's conversation. It's a completely to separate have. thing. It's it's, it's yeah, separate, there yeah. is there is a Fox News kind of hysteria around gaming, but at the same time, like and and clearly, you know, one way I pitched her story when I was telling people why it was interesting, I was like, this is a game about listening. And I was like, that's cool because you know whatever you think about the larger politics of it or, or the question of whether video games themselves are inherently harmful or anything, like the fact that still 99% of the stories we tell are about someone with a gun in their hand or a sword in their hand. Yeah. And the, the, the power dynamics and the story, the types of stories and the types of protagonists, uh, like it's screwed up. And I think to the same extent that the fact that like the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, is about a bunch of glorified cops going around saving the world, like... You know, you, if you continue to reinforce these things. Yeah, I mean, we're, obviously- all, all of the art we make are saying certain things about the world and we're reinforcing a certain narrative over and over again and not really thinking critically about it. Yeah, that's the problem <laughs> with making art. I mean, I'm, I, I'm not trying to come off as being anti-gamer. I play a lot of games. I really like gaming. I just think some, some companies need to figure out why, why certain games are used in mass shooting manifestos and certain games aren't. Um, particularly around like politics, like this is particularly particularly talking about like white supremacy and how certain games kind of play into certain things. Because even even a game like Wolfenstein, which I think handles this topic very well, still will you know get brought up in certain you know propaganda videos because they do have cool shots of Nazis walking around, right? That's the it's kind of the problem with some of these things. Um, and you know if they weren't killing if Nazis weren't killing people as much, this wouldn't be as much of a problem. But because that's still a thing, that's still a thing that 
needs to get talked about. Anyway, this 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 took a very sad sad <laughs> turn towards the end. Um, anyway, yeah, I but I, I will I will just strongly recommend playing her story, uh, playing Telling Lies. I think these games, you know, interrogate our our predispositions about about kind of police detective work. Um, and you just get to learn a lot. You get to learn a lot about like people and characters because like a, a lot of these games, you know, where the setup is like, oh, solve this crime or mystery. But then by the end, you're solving a very different mystery, and you're kind of solving what makes the person tick. And it's very you've you, I, I really like the arc that you have in your games. They've brought me a lot of uh, happiness. So thank thank you for that, and thank you for um, talking with all of us um, ab- about your work. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, like I say, I was I was hoping to have hundreds more conversations about what telling lies was about and, and about these issues when it came out, but it's, uh, you know, that it's, I mean, it's hard, just the general media landscape now, like you put something out there and it comes out and people consume it. Yeah. And move on. Like you don't have that span of like discussion that, that, I don't know. It feels like it used to used to be a thing. Yeah, I, I think it definitely did did used to be a thing, and definitely your games have had an influence on media in certain ways. And I know there's been like a few other like projects that like Netflix is doing that is kind of taking your concept but not really doing it correctly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No comment. No. Yeah, there's definitely been a lot. Yeah, people always send me them. They're like, "Oh, this sounds a lot like." Story this thing, and it's like, "Oh, but it's it's billed it's as not, being non-linear." Yeah, storytelling. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, it's like. You you let people. I don't know. Yeah, usually it's like watch. There are eight episodes. You can watch them in any order, which isn't how her story works. No, yeah. Like yeah, there's a, there's a yeah, there's a whole different thing going on. But um, no, I mean it's yeah, it's interesting times for for that sort of stuff. But um, anyway, play these games on Steam, and that that does it for today. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at Happen Here Pod and Cool Zone Media. Uh, do, do you have do you have a social media that you would like to plug, or would your people? Uh, if if people are on Twitter, uh, that's where I tend to be, despite its despite its t- yeah, I know. So I am I am uh, Mr. Sam Barlow on Twitter. Mr. Sam Barlow. I, I will say I I actually I actually do like your Twitter account. You, you do you do post some fun stuff every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of a weird condescending thing to say. Um, anyway, bye for buddy. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to fifteen hundred dollars again sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and game sense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. 
big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. That's going to that's gonna be <laughs> way too jarring to open an episode with. Well, we already did it, so let's keep moving. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, the episode's actually going to start with Garrison saying, that's way too jarring to open an episode with, and the listeners won't know what that is it was. A much, that is a much easier opening. Um, well, all right. this. So we're doing, I'm going to be, I'm going to be reading a thing today cool. and then we're going to talk about the thing that we're reading. Um, and that's, and, that's and the who, show. And who are you and who is here? Oh yeah, this is it yeah, could happen are here. You? This is it could happen here? here. I'm, I'm Garrison. I am our resident Canadian. Oh, good um, to know. Yeah. That's yeah. Anderson. That's Anderson the dog. And here we yeah, have, we, we had have... to hire a Canadian for a diversity quota. <laughs> 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 you don't, you do not. <laughs> anyway, uh, we have Chris here, uh, Robert Evans, as usual, um, and Sophie. Hi. So we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk a little bit about about Canada today. So, oh, good. In the uh, in like the scripted what if scenarios first posited in the original, it could happen here. Um, it detailed what it might be like to live in the United States during a modern civil conflict. And like one of the stories that we kind of tell ourselves as a culture is about you know. <laughs> crossing up into the safe haven of Canada whenever stuff breaks out in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, you, whether that be like an escape from just the hell that's U.S. politics um, or, you know, going up into the cold northern terrain, better equipped to deal with climate change. Canada is kind of just viewed as a bastion of like li- of liberal democracy in North America. Um, you know, I've, I've made jokes in the past about using my Canadian passport to escape up into the forest of Alberta when things get too dicey here in the States. But this like weird utopian view of Canada is not just wrong about Canada's current political uh, state, but also assumes that a Canada is like immune to the political shifts that the states have gone through uh, the past few years, which is it's it's very obviously not. Um, so like Canada internationally is and specifically in the states, it's, it's viewed as like you know Canada. It's, it's used as like America's little brother 
but it's you know it's much more you know democratic it's much more liberal it's like it's like this kind of ideal scenario for like what the states could be and like canadians have a weird view of the states as well like canadians they're both like they're, like they're kind of obsessed like a lot of canadians i think know more about u.s politics than, than they know about canadian politics um <laughs> but almost in like a way that we watch sports it's it's like it's like this thing that we like watch as entertainment like like some kind of like sick reality show that's how i think a lot of canadians really view u.s politics um because it's just so wacky compared to the kind of more like civil parliamentary system that we have in Canada. U.S. politics just looks very, very bizarre. And there's always this notion. It's like no matter how bad things can get in Canada, at least we're not the states. At, at least at least we're not at least we're not the U.S. And that is kind of a lot of a lot of how a lot of stuff can get really get can just like survive in Canada longer because it's just they they view it like at least at least we're not as bad as the other people. Yeah. So that's how, you know, it gives them some kind of some kind of sense of security. But in terms of like in terms of Canada as a country, you know, we we we've said that Canada as a country is basically just, you know, a few mining companies in a trench coat and the trench coat is healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um and that's that's really all they are as 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 a country. Um but today we're going to be talking about kind of Canada's slide towards farther right-wing politics, um, both, you know, historically and then more recently, because a, a lot of what we've seen in the States has happened kind of in its own weird Canadian way around the same time. Um, but before we, really, before we, like, really get started, I think it'd be remiss not to mention how the Canadian government has historically treated Indigenous and First Nations people um, living on that land. Uh, of course, it's like not only just hundreds of years ago, but a lot more recently as well. Just in the past year, there have been thousands and thousands of like hidden graves found across the provinces at the sites of these residential schools. Um, and the process of looking for these unmarked graves has like just just started. Um, the Canadian Historical Association published a letter this past Canada Day. Canada Day is like Independence Day, but for Canada. Um, Saying that it was abundantly clear that Canada is guilty of is is, is guilty of genocide. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's there's a few episodes of Behind the Bastards, um, and I think even worse here that that talk about r- residential schools um, and and the genocide of Indigenous yeah, people in, in Canada. So yeah, you can you can check those out. And I, I wrote this episode to be more focused on Canada's political shifts the past five years. But since we're talking to be talking about Canadian fascism, I thought it would be irresponsible to not mention this up front as like a, a thing. Very responsible, um, Garrison. Very responsible. So I'm going to try to take us through aspects of Canadians pol- of, of Canada's politics chron- chronologically. Um, you guys can butt in and kind of ask questions and clarifications about stuff. Um, but the, the first thing that we're going to start with is actually going to be on the First Nations side of things. And th- th- that's kind of how, that, that's what mostly Indigenous people are called in Canada, is First Nations. Um, even, you know, the Indigenous people up in Canada, most of them use that term. So that's the term I'll be using for some, some of this stuff, just because that's the one that's used up there. Um, so the, uh, the residential schools program is where I'm going to briefly mention a few things about it, just because of how it kind of relates to some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about for the rest of the episode. Um, yeah, I'm I'm going to I'm going to read some I'm going to read some words by uh by Duncan Campbell Scott who was the department uh, who who was who was the deputy superintendent of Indian Affairs. This was like a a rank in the Canadian government. Um he served as the deputy <coughs> superintendent from 1913 to 1932. Um and he's arguably like the main architect of the residential schools program. Um he was he was also good friends 
uh, with the first prime minister of Canada, John uh, John John McDonald. So here's here is here is how this guy, the 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 architect of this program, this is this is how he kind of talked talked about this in letters to both his like his underlings and just like openly quote. It is readily acknowledged that Indian children lose their natural resistance to illness by habituating so close in the residential schools and that they die at a much higher rate than in their villages, but this does not justify a change in the policy of this department, which is geared towards a final solution for our Indian problem. It is quite within the mark to say that 50% of children who pass through these schools did not live to benefit from the education in which they had received. So, that's... That's just what he calls it. He he says the final solution to the Indian problem. It's very very uh, very oh, clear what what like that. That's just the language he uses. And this was like before Hitler, though. Like this was this was mm-hmm. 1913. Well, I mean, this Hitler is, was paying attention to these. Guys. Yeah, so yeah. Like this yeah. this yeah. is just like this is the mindset of all of these same people. This is all of all of the same thing. Um, uh, another 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 quote from this dude is. I want to get rid of the Indian problem. I do not think of it as a matter of fact that the country ought to continually protect a class of people who are able to stand alone. That's my whole point. Our objective is to continue until there's not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the, into the body politic and there is no Indian question and no Indian department. That is the whole objective of this bill, the bill referring to the residential schools program. Yeah. So that's... Cool. That's how he talks about these things. Um, there, there's other letters that he's sent that's like telling his um, his like agents because he had like agents stationed at at uh, Canadian at Canadian reserves to like not let Indians do dancing because both that's you know that's doing their cultural practice, but also it'll distract them from learning how to do Western farming. Um, like they, they weren't allowed to go to fairs or exhibitions or anything that you, like that anything that has like that is reminiscent of like any kind of cultural tradition that is not white and European. Um, so he, he is, he is a pretty, pretty, pretty bad dude. He probably deserves his own, his own thing, the, this, this specific guy, but yeah. you can, you can kind of see like these like fascist ideas and rhetoric are not foreign to Canada. Um, and it, you know, it's been there since its infancy. Now Canadian politics is very different in a lot of ways compared to American politics. Uh, Canada tries to kind of follow the European model, Whereas America is very much like the rebel state that tries to play on its play by its own rules. Um, kind of the first main difference is that Canada isn't a two party system. Um, it's it's more like a two party plus system because yeah, there still is the main liberals and the main conservatives, but there are there are other parties that actually can get elected. Um, and it, it's it's not it's not like a strictly two party system the same way the states is. So that makes things more interesting. Um, and another thing that's really interesting about like cultural politics that's that's different from the states, you know, besides you know Canada obviously has like a parliament and a prime minister that's different, but the Canada view and Canadians view nationalism and patriotism very differently uh, compared to um, to like um, United States um, citizens. Um, patriotism and in, in some ways nationalism have always been kind of more of a liberal progressive thing, um, you know, in opposition to the states where it is not really seen as a liberal progressive thing. Um, so like even under conservative leadership, Canada kind of prides itself as a as sort of like liberal utopia. And that's where a lot of the patriotism and celebration of Canada comes from among its, you know, mostly liberal and more socially progressive citizens. They like celebrate Canada as like this great progressive nation. And that's where a lot of the patriotism comes from is like, Oh, look, look how progressive we are. Um, then the nationalism part can be a bit more tricky 
because uh, you first need to understand like the English and French divide, uh, which it, within the country, which I I barely understand that to, to be honest. I was yeah. I was I was I was born in the prairies. That was you know much more of like the Protestant English 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 settlement. You know I'm not from Quebec, uh, but we'll be talking about Quebec a lot here because it is very important to how nationalism works in Canada. So the divide between the French and the English make elections really interesting because the uh, English majority politicians usually need to court some of the French Canadian population and and people in Quebec in order to get enough parliamentary seats to have a majority government because Canada works on having a majority within the parliament. Um, you can have a minority in, in 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 the parliament like the Liberals currently have. So even if you know someone doesn't win a plurality of votes, they can still be in control of the government in a minor in a minority or usually a majority capacity. I'll we'll get into this kind of stuff later. Um, but even though they need to get seats from Quebec to have you know a decent control of Parliament, Quebec kind of likes to act like its own special country. Um, they even have their own like federal political party, uh, the Bloc Québécois, and so like that that that's a, that's a federal party that operates in forwarding the interests of Quebec. Sometimes it functions as like a separatist party, but not really anymore. Um, so although an, the, 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 the Bloc Québécois is a lot, is, is, is a lot more secular and progressive than basically any, any other major party outside of the NDP. Um, but despite them being much more like socially progressive, they're also like one of the biggest nationalist parties um, in, in Canada. And you know the the the, the far right parties in Canada have ha- always had their you know brand of ethno nationalism, but that was that's that's been much less pronounced than the kind of like keep non French Canadians out of Quebec and keep Americans out of Canada type of nationalism that's common with like liberals um, and specifically you know progressives inside Quebec. I mean, I can't not- blame them for wanting to keep Americans. out. No, yeah, that, like you that's could- <laughs> just good sense. If I could keep Americans out of America, I would do it. Yeah, but so that kind of sentiment, you can see how that can, like, you know, be used to foster some not good things, though. That 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 specific type of thinking of t- of like keeping nationals, like you know, keeping foreign nationals out of your state. Yeah, it's good to not have Americans there, but sure. you know, that's going to get extended towards other people. Yeah, um, that's unfortunate. Yeah, and and like so, even though you know the nationalism can be a lot more progressive, that's not to say ethno nationalism does not come up within these sects, yeah. um, which is going to bring us to uh, we're going to briefly talk about something from the '30s called the uh, called the National Unity Party of the National Unity Party of Canada, um, the National Unity Party National Unity Party. That is a weird thing to say. Um, a, was a, was originally called the Canadian National Socialist Unity Party. Um, oh wait, now that Garrison, hmm, uh-huh. uh, remind me, national socialism. That seems like a term with a little bit of baggage. If I yeah, remember yeah. correctly. Yep, it, it, it sort of does. Um, so th- th- this was a party uh, formed in uh, 1934 by a little Nazi shithead named Adrian Arcon. Um, now that is, if you cannot tell, that it's me trying to say a French name. So he is from Quebec. This is a lot of Canadian Nazi stuff originates inside Quebec because it already has such nationalist tendencies. Cool. Um, 
So uh, Arkan's introduction into nationalism started around the turn of the century um, amid fears in Quebec that Chinese immigration would threaten the white French-Canadian working class. Um, This is still a big thing in Canada. Uh, 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 Racism and nationalism against the Chinese is still a big thing. We will talk about this at the very end of of these episodes because that's still a thing the Conservative Party talks about a lot. so yeah, his his internationalism was because of fears of Chinese immigration in the early 1900s. Um, the the anti his so his anti-immigrant upbringing plus the fact that he attended a Catholic school. Um, there the, 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 there was no there was no public schools in Quebec until the 1960s. All of the schools were either uh, Catholic or Protestant. Now this is also part of the cultural divide inside Canada, where usually the English speakers are Protestant and they're usually further west, and the and the Catholics are usually you know French Canadians. There's a lot of that inside Quebec. Um, so he went to a Catholic school, uh, which were at the time very anti-Jewish because. What was happening is the Jewish people in Quebec wanted to make their own Jewish schools, and the Catholics, like in charge, didn't want that because then that'd be less people were inside Catholic schools and they weren't, you know, learning Catholicism. So there's a lot, a lot of stuff going on here that is kind of contributing. So he was, you know, already anti-immigrant because of the Chinese, and then he got got exposed to anti-Semitism inside his Catholic schools, uh, and that, you know, pushed him onto this specific path. So in 1930, um, Arcon made a deal with the head of the Conservative Party, R. B. Bennett. That in exchange for fifteen thousand dollars, which is like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in today's money, yeah. um, Ar- Arkan would craft a smear campaign, um, trying to assist the conservatives in basically smearing the liberals to gain more conservative support inside the province of Quebec, which at the time was ma- majority liberal leaning. So Arkan got to work and started prepping, you know, like pseudo fascist propaganda for the conservatives. Um, and by the 1930 federal election, it absolutely worked. Um, uh, Bennett and the conservatives won. They gained 24 parliamentary seats in Quebec, which is a, a massive success. Like before, they, they did not win any seats in Quebec. So gaining 24 seats in, for, over the course of just one election, massive win. Um, so after getting the after getting the conservatives elected, uh, the conservative party dropped Arcon because he was, you know, a little hashtag problematic. Um, That's a shame. Uh huh. So after he got dropped by the conservatives, uh, short, shortly later, Arkan made contact with the growing National Socialist Party in Germany. Um, and over the next few years, he just he started to gain more fascist contacts around the world. He would exchange letters. People from people like people people from the German Nazis would come over and meet what, what and come over to Canada and see what he was doing. He would travel around meeting other other Nazis around the world. Um, so this is kind of just like just gaining a lot a lot more contacts. So then in 1934, he formed his own fascist party, which is the Canadian National Socialist Unity Party. And within that year, so in, in the you know, mid-1930s, it merged with other Canadian nationalist parties that were more based in the West. So you know, uh, in the prairies like Alberta, Saskatchewan, and BC. So it merged with a few other kind of nationalist groups and started gaining traction, getting thousands and thousands of members. This actually became an actual thing. You can find footage of the, of his rallies, and they're just terrifying. Just like, you know, you know just, it's, it's the same thing whenever you see, like, the Nazis, you know, rallying in Britain. You know, it, it, it feels different than watching a Nazi rally in Germany, because you can feel a lot more, you know, if it's, it's, it's the same yeah, feeling, but come, own, but come home. Your own countrymen kind of do the same thing that you associate yeah. with old footage of dead people is uh, exactly. real, real fucked up. Yeah. So he was gaining thousand members across Canada, um, you know, mostly in the provinces of, of Quebec and Alberta. Al- so the, the, the two main provinces we're going to talk about are going to be Quebec and, and Alberta, because that's where a lot of a lot of the far right stuff gets started out. 
Um, so in 1938, so that's like four years after he started this, uh, the Canadian National Socialist Unity Party merged again, this time with various nationalist gr- groups and so-called swastika cl- clubs. Oh, um, cool. In that we're already inside like Ontario and Quebec, so on the eastern side of Canada. So now he, he, he united both the Quebec stuff, eastern Canada, and western Canada, and then he called that the National Unity Party. Um, mm-hmm. And Arcan appointed himself the Canadian Fuhrer. Oh, um, gosh. Rad. Uh-huh. Yeah. Sweet. So, and I, I, now I'm going to quote from a Time, Time magazine piece from July of 1938. Arcon scheduled Canada's first national fascist convention for Kingston, Ontario. The mayor and city council did not want a fascist convention held in their city and called the police to prevent it. Defiantly, leader Arcon slipped 45 of his leaders into a room near police headquarters. This is old-timey language. Held forth unmolested for five and a half hours. Um, Upon emerging, leader Arkan wired thanks to the mayor for his courtesy extended and announced the formation of the new National Unity Party. A flaming torch will be the new party's emblem. Canada for Canadians, its slogan. And the Mm. upraised arm of its salute for king, country, and Christianity. Uh. Moving on to Ontario, leader Arkan, supported by 85 of his blue shirts, uh, he claims there were 80,000 members at the time, held a meeting in Mansi Hall that was attended by about 800 sympathizers. More impressive, however, there were three anti-fascist counter-demonstrations held simultaneously. Two outdoor anti-fascist meetings drew 400 persons until broken up by police fearing a clash. But at Maple Leaf Gardens, the Canadian League of Peace and Democracy attracted 10,000. So this was the first big fascist rally in Canada in 1938. There was like, you know, 10,000 of these more liberal people rallying elsewhere, and 400, like, anti-fascists ready to, you know, beat up these Nazis. Um, would then the police be- beat them up? Because history doesn't change, time's a flat circle, we're still doing the same thing now. Do you know who won't rally 800 Canadian Nazis called the, the Blue Shirts to sell you products? Oh my god, I who? Mean, Tell us. promise that. Gary. Yeah, <laughs> depend. De- de- Depending what, yeah. Because HelloFresh has, uh, <laughs> has recently been sending their. Why uh, do you always pick HelloFresh? There are so many worse brands well, that have Hello accidentally advertised on our brand, shows. But we can't ignore the fact that they've been increasingly building their militant capacity for the last seven years. Anyway, here's some ads. We have too much to read. <laughs> and we are back talking about the Canadian blue shirts. Mm-hmm. Um, the HelloFresh. Hello. Sh- shirts. Uh-huh. Harrison, please continue. Blue aprons. The, yeah, the, the blue, blue aprons. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Th- thanks, Chris, for saving the bit. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Um, so next year, after his first rally, which was 1939, uh, World War II obviously started to ramp up, and the Canadian government arrested Arcon for plotting to overthrow the state, um, and his National Unity Party was banned from federal elections. Arkan was released from prison after the war, but he continued his political aspirations. Um, he ran for federal election twice in Quebec, uh, once in 1949 and once in 1953. Both times he, uh, he ran under his National Unity Party banner, despite it being banned from elections. I don't know how he did that. Um, both <laughs> times... Are fake. Laws are fake, yeah. Uh, both times he placed second uh, with over uh, uh, five, and a half, five and a half thousand votes, which is about like 30% of, of, of the vote. Um, actually, but the uh, the second time he ran as a, he ran just under a national spanner, um, and he got second as well. But he got like forty percent of the vote, so he he did a slight slightly better just running as a nationalist in Quebec, not like the national unity thing because that was you know more overtly Nazi. 
But he kept holding National Unity Party public rallies until the mid-60s. Uh, his, his last rally, I think, attracted like 1,000 uh, supporters. That's way too many. I was hoping so, you were going to say like three, and there was no. some really sad footage, but that's no. sad in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. So he finally died in 1967. Um, hooray! And, and with him also died the National Unity Party. Um, also hooray. I, so I, I bring this one up because it's, one, fucked up and interesting. Um, and two, it's like it's indicative of the weirdness that can come out of Quebec's nationalist political bent. Uh, we can see that now with a modern, fa- uh, you know, neo-fascist Canadian political party that's based out of Quebec, which we will talk about shortly. Um, but even like the nationalist tendencies within Quebec's more mainstream progressive population, like I, I'm, I'm going to read some of the policy positions of the Bloc Québécois party. That's that's that, that's the, that's like the Quebec sovereignty, you know, uh, party yeah, that is. V- still actually v- very very popular in, in elections, specifically in Quebec. And just ahead of this, if you're a French speaker and you're frustrated by Garrison's pronunciations or my pronunciations of Quebecois, uh, just note that your language isn't real <laughs> and it's fine. All right. And you're descended and you're from the French. Yeah. <laughs> and you're responsible for this Nazi. So, yeah. Womp womp. so go to hell. Unlike, unlike English speakers who have been responsible for French zero, is just zero atrocities. Spanish. That's my take. Okay. Anyway, just saying Spanish wrong. Here, here, here is the progressive liberal bloc Quebecois uh, policy positions. Um, Quebec sovereignty, you know, up into independence, but usually it's just, you know, them pushing the interests of Quebec. Um, inv- environmentalism, abortion rights, you know, p- pro-abortion rights, um, oh, LG- okay. LG- LGBTQ rights, um, okay. legal- legalization of, of assisted suicide, um, okay. opposition to Canadian par- participation in the Iraq war. Okay. Um, ob- uh, Abolition of, hit so far. abolition of the abolition of the monarchy. Okay. All right. Uh, forcing stuff. forcing immigrants to speak French in Quebec. Mm, okay. Now you lost me. You lost Blocking, me there. Blocking immigration to Quebec. You've also lost me there. The, the Quebec secularism law, which bans public workers in positions of authority from wearing religious symbols, primarily targeted at Muslims and Sikhs. Yeah, you've no, kind of lost. Yeah, me there, we're lost. Yeah. Exemption, yeah. Quebec's exemption from the requirements of the Multiculturalism Act. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the Multicultural Act, but I'm going to. It's great. You've it's lost it's me there it's too. good. So yeah, so you can kind of see how like they have you know. Mm-hmm. All these, like, you know, just pretty good stuff, pretty good progressive things. And it's then going they great get, until the racism. And then they get really anti immigrant, right? <laughs> so, this is like, this is kind of hard to explain to Americans how, like, you can be very, like, pro gay, yep. pro, you know, abolition of the monarchy, but then also be like, no, but we don't want those brown people in Quebec. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, we're, we're, we're going to move on from Quebec specifically, but don't worry, we will be back because you're still a problem. Oh, uh, but there, there, are, there are, other things to, are other things to discuss. So after Archon's fascist Canadian movement, there was a stint of like Canadian skinheads in the 70s, you know, um, around the same time as the UK and the US. Um, in the 70s, there was an unsuccessful Nazi party called the Nationalist Party of Canada that spawned a skinhead gang called Heritage Front. Um, Heritage Front disbanded around the mid 2000s because uh, the Canadian feds infiltrated it and kind of, you know, cut that down. So critical support to the Canadian feds. But now we're going to move on to Unite the Right. Uh, n- not, not, not the Unite Right that you're thinking of, the Canadian U- Unite the Right movement from the uh, 1990s, early 2000s. Yeah, but so, that one probably wasn't problematic, right? There is, it has no lasting problems. 
Yeah, that's good. Okay. So because of because of Canada's multi multi party system, there's more opportunity for ideologically similar parties to split the vote. You know, uh, of people leaning in a certain direction. Um, throughout most of the later half of the 20th century, there were multiple conservative right wing parties. Uh, that were operating at the same time, which did split the right of center vote. This is in part what allowed Canada to rise as like a liberal haven, because for a while, the conservatives just couldn't get elected because they were splitting the vote too many ways, leaving the main liberal party to win the vast majority of elections. Um, obviously, this frustrated right-wing politicians and vo- and voters. Uh, then in the 1990s, there were, there were, there were two main right-wing parties. <clears throat> there was the older progressive conservative party, they're like a classically fiscal conservative party with slightly less socially conservative beliefs. So, you know, I, I would rather take them compared to the alternatives here. Um, the other major party was a right of center party called the Reform Party, which was much more of like a right wing populist and extremely socially conservative party, more similar to like the Trump era Re- Republican Party. You know, they're, 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 much, they're much more right wing populist. They're way more socially conservative, kind of what we traditionally think of as like, you know, like a racist Republican. That this 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 is their party called called the Reform Party. So after after loss after loss throughout the nineties and during the turn of the century, uh, concerted efforts were being made between these two parties to unite into one. In 1998, there was a Unite the Right conference held in Toronto, Ontario, trying to bring together politicians and delegates from these two main conservative parties. But they also brought in some much more extreme Christian fascist parties, which there was like four of at the time. There was a lot of a lot of Christian fascist parties around this time. Um, so the, the, the conference garnered uh, negative news coverage, in part due to the inclusion of these far-right Christian extremist parties. And then after the conference, uh, polls were conducted that suggested that many of the progressive conservative supporters would rather vote liberal than vote for the new kind of merged, more extreme right wing party. So like a, a lot of these, a lot of these like fiscal conservatives are like, no, I, I'm not going to vote for all of this weird racism. I just don't want there to be higher taxes. So like I'm going yeah. to I'm going to rather vote for the liberals than vote for these fucking weirdos, which I mean, yeah, like that's that that's the conservative I would rather have. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um so the the conference didn't sit well with the with the progressive conservative party, um, its politicians or, or or the political leaders. So the merger plans were were, were cut off. They're like, nope, we're not going to do this. You guys are too weird and racist. We're not doing this. <laughs> um, then in two thousand two, no, I think this is important that, that this was after nine eleven. Uh, I think this is really the reason why this happened. Um, one of the original Reform Party founders, that the Reform Party is the more populist one. So one of the original founders named Stephen Harper. Uh, took control of the populist conservative party and worked to improve the optics of the more extreme sides of his party. Uh, I think it's very important that this this happened after 9-11, and this is how the merger actually worked. So in 2003, merger talks started up again, and in August of that year, the two parties announced the merger had been completed, and there was a new united conservative party. Um, In the announcement, Harper is quoted as saying, Our swords will henceforth be pointed at the liberals, not each other. And in December, Harper was voted in as the new party leader. The work did pay off. Um, in the 2006 Canadian federal election, the Conservatives gained a controlling minority government among the electorate, with the former co-founder of the extremist uh, you know, populist uh, reform party, Stephen Harper, becoming the new Prime Minister of Canada. So this is how he got from reform party to being the, you know, the Prime Minister in, throughout the, throughout the 2000s. Um, he was the Prime Minister of Canada for most of the time I lived there. That, that, that's who I think of when I think of the Prime Minister of Canada is I think of Stephen Harper. So Harper remained as Prime Minister until the 2015 election that saw a noted blackface appreciator Justin Trudeau elected under the Liberal Party. 
So that's God. good. <laughs> what a good system we have. That yeah, that, that man, like, just he the sheer done, range of his blackface. Like, there's I like, know. he has yeah, range. You have to look. <laughs> say what you will about the man, Robert. Be very careful to wear Robert, a lot of blackface. No, you under what? no circumstances gotta <laughs> hand it to him. <laughs> you do not, in fact, have to hand it to him. Well, you have to hand him uh, the the little the towel that he uses to get the blackface off of his face, so uh-huh. that he can go into his work running yeah. Canada. Uh huh. Yep. Oh. Cool. <laughs> so, Great country. The, so, <laughs> didn't we find out that like five of our governors all had blackface photos? Yes, we did. Yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was. It was. It was a big year for blackface. It really. It's incredible because I can't picture. Like again, I grew up very right wing and definitely had some said some uncomfortable things in my time. I don't think there was ever a point at which I would have been like, "Yeah, this seems like a good idea." Right? <laughs> like, like, it's, what the fuck? Like. <sighs> yeah, it's pretty like, messed what up. What is the joke? <laughs> there it's pretty it's pretty bad. <sighs> oh, Justin Trudeau. Oh. This Weirdo. is the liberal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is. Incredible. He sure okay. is. <laughs> he this. is the the one all of the wine moms thirst over. Yeah. Yeah, that scans. Respect the wine moms, not. Yeah. Anyway, um, beyond making it easier to vote in right-of-center candidates, what, what the Canadian Unite the Right accomplished was pushing the conservative establishment much further to the right than what the previously popular progressive conservatives had established, while maintaining the respectability and civility the progressive conservatives had cultivated. We are now going to skip ahead to 2017. Um, in, in January of 2017, uh, soon after uh, U.S. President Donald Trump put into place the travel ban from, uh, from you know, seven Muslim-majority countries. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau delivered a message via Twitter. To those fleeing persecution, terror, and war, Canadians will welcome you regardless of your faith. Diversity is our strength. Hashtag welcome to Canada. So J- J- Trudeau is like, if the U.S. is going to be good, racist, yeah. we're going we're gonna to let them in. Um, for, this, uh, for this next part, I'm going to quote from the New York Times. Um, just hours after watching the television report suggesting Canada would accept immigrants uh, that were shunned by Trump, the 28-year-old political science student packed his Glock handgun and rifle and trudged through the snow-covered streets of Quebec to a nearby Islamic cultural center. As 53 men were finishing evening prayers, he unloaded 48 rounds, six people were killed, several of them with shots to the head, and 19 others were injured. One was paralyzed for life. In the month before his rampage, the shooter uh, trawled the internet 819 times for posts related to Mr. Trump, reading his Twitter feed daily, and homing in on the American president's travel ban on several Muslim-majority countries. He kept a cache of guns underneath his bed at his parents' house, and among his friends was just his twin brother. The shooter told investigators that he wished he had killed more people, and he wanted to protect his family from Islamic terrorists. Experts on radicalization say that in Quebec, the French-speaking province surrounded by an English-speaking majority, the anti-immigrant far right offers fertile, uh, fer- fertile imperialist ground for psychologically unstable youths seeking a sense of identity and a scapegoat. The head of the Canadian-based Center of Prevention of Radicalization Leading to Violence said that the, said that the Quebec mosque shooter was, in part of a, was part of a growing number of educated, middle-class white youths in Quebec drawn to far-right ideas, fueled by the election of Mr. Trump and fanned by fears of immigration that threatens Quebec's identity. 
when the Anti-Radicalization Center was started in 2015, they dealt with 16 cases of youths in the province that were getting radicalized by the far right. Last year, which was like 2016, uh, the center had 154 such cases. So this is, this is kind of the, the arc of things. Really, Trump's, Trump's election did spur, did, did spur a lot of this growing, like, oh, these political beliefs are acceptable now, right? Like, this is something that is, like, we are, yes. we are, we are allowed to do this. And that that did echo in Canada and across a lot of the a lot of a lot of other countries. Um, what, what one of one of the victims of the of the Quebec uh, massacre, um, his his father said that he he come to Canada from Algeria in the 1990s to escape terrorism, um, and he said that like Quebec did not create the monster, the shooter, but the Islamophobia that is inherent inside Quebec gave him like the motive. So. This is really does relate to Canada, to like the the political situation of Canada, and it's very, it's, it's 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 not a coincidence that the majority of these types of attacks are inside either Quebec, Toronto, or um you know if you're if you're a white per- if you're if you're in Alberta, it's slightly it's more tied to like other other like conservative values, but like a lot of it is around Quebec for a lot of these like shootings and all these acts of terrorism. Um, there was like the uh, there was the uh, incel guy who ran over tons of people in in Toronto with his car. Um, same same kind of thing of like of getting yeah. more more used to these kind of having these far right ideas be more allowed, um, and then thinking them as more of like a normalized thing. So that so the the the, the Quebec mosque shooting uh, kind of woke up a lot of people in Canada to be like, oh, we're not immune to this. This is like an actual thing that we are, have to deal with too. Um, and the, the, the next few months after Trudeau's January announcement, uh, border crossings did see an increase and Canada formally accepted more immigrants and refugees. And, and, not, and there was like, uh, in a, the, the term in Canada is like an irregular spike of border crossings. Um, the fact, the, the way Canadian media reported this, I think is very irresponsible. The way they tried to like frame this is like, after this announcement, we're getting so many irregular crossings that only fueled this type of like, this type of anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, it was, it was not really great. A lot of the old articles I pulled up for this were like, had really, had really disgusting framing. Um, especially, you know, viewing it now. So uh, in March, uh, the Canadian Parliament passed a motion that condemns Islamophobia and requests that the government recognize the need to quell the public uh, uh, f- climate of fear and hate, uh, specifically around Muslims and immigrants. Um, the motion was non-binding, so it, does- it doesn't mean anything. It's just the government saying something nice. Um, but it's Aww, still it's sweet. it's still sparked tons of outrage. Um, you know, it called on the government to condemn Islamophobia and all forms of systemic racism and uh, discrimination. Uh, the The margin was passed by like the, the, it was passed by a margin of like two hundred to uh, two hundred over ninety. So people, a lot of a lot of the conservatives in parliament didn't didn't like this, but it it's it's it garnered so much online backlash. There were there were petitions and nationwide protests condemning this bill as an attack on free speech. Um, and uh, the, the the person who introduced the bill, um, uh, an, an, an MP named um, Ikra Khalid, uh, received death threats um, on uh, through like their email and like they had like their private private information leaked, and it, it, it turned into this very very big kind of one of the first things where it had like these like national protests in Canada that you know similar to how we had like the free speech thing around 2017. This was like the Canadian version of that and how this kind of started. Um, 
And in December, Trudeau signed into the United Nations Global uh, Migration Pact, which is another non-binding incentive designed to provide understanding among nations about how to deal with the global immigration crisis. Again, all these things are just people talking, um, but it made people very, very mad. Because if you're talking about it, that means it actually is real and it's actually going to affect you versus just ignoring that these problems exist. So really, after Trump's election, after the Quebec, after, after the Quebec mosque shooting, then we have all these bills, this kind of ignited a in-person rallying possibility and in-person protests that Canada hadn't really seen before for th- this type of like anti-immigration sentiments. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about these protests after, after we have a little, little bit of an ad break. You know who doesn't get protested except for that one time when it's, they illegally overthrew the government of Ecuador? Uh, you have to be more... The, the, That's right, Garrison, our sponsors. Only one time did they cause mass protests as a result of overthrowing a sovereign government. That's pretty good, Garrison. That's pretty good. Are you trying to do like a banana republic thing? What what are you What are you doing? I'm just saying most podcasts three to four governments overthrown by their sponsors. All right, it could happen here. Just the one, baby. Hello, welcome to Why Canada Isn't a Liberal Utopia and actually has a lot of the same systemic problems that every other Western country does, and it's not immune to fascist infiltration and fascist co-option. Sophie, um, make a note of that. <laughs> so, as so, I know we, we've talked a lot about Quebec and stuff, uh, which is uh, great because yeah, it is a problem. But this exists in the Western provinces as well. Saskatchewan, Alberta, BC have a lot of these growing kind of things, but they're not French Canadians doing this. They're more like you know what we in America would you know recognize as as like rural conservatives. Um, so around all of this, you know, increased discussion around immigration in 2017. Um, around the same time, people in Western Canada have, were facing a bit of an economic recession. They had you know, sig- significant job loss around this time, um, and projects that traditionally brought work to the area, like pipelines, were, you know, there was discussion of them getting stalled and people you know, moving more towards renewable energy. This kind of increased a lot of the political tensions between the Eastern you know, liberal majority Canada and the Western more rural Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, qu- quoting an article from the CBC, uh, Trudeau just keeps giving away all of our money to immigrants, said Samantha. Oh boy, that is a that is a French name. I'm not even mm-hmm. attempt that one. We'll <laughs> call, her, call her Frenchie. Sam, yeah. Samantha Frenchie. Anyway, this mother of five, she attended a January 5th rally uh, with uh, Webster, her husband, and two of their children. It was her first protest for any cause. We're stuck paying for all this money that he wants to give away to everybody but Canadians. My kids are growing up, and my grandkids and all of their kids are going to be poor and stuck in a hole that they're never going to get out of. This is, this is you know, very common type of thing. Like, oh, we're, we're getting taxed and taking all of our money and giving, giving away to immigrants. This happened after, this, after the Syrian r- refugee crisis when Canada started accepting a lot of Syrian I- immigrants. That's, that's around the time that I left Canada. Um, but I totally re- remember people, you know, having very similar sentiments of like, why are we, you know, paying for all of these r- refugees, you know? And I know that, 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 that's, that's the thing that happens in the States too. Yeah. Um, so the, the economic tensions developing in Western Canada, combined with the increase in anti-immigration sentiments among conservatives, were in part spurred by the Trump presidency, uh, led to the Canadian Yellow Vest Movement. Um, 
this is totally separate from the French pro- protest movement. Um, the Canadian version just stole like the working class branding and just used it for their proto-fascist crusade. Um, so the Canadian Yellow Vests were a a, a, a a group of connected protest movements over the course of 2018 and 2019 that had a lot of like in-person rallies, but also a lot of online mobilization. It's kind of since died out, uh, but it was a, a major force in pushing right-wing extremism in Canada and having it be accessible to like regular people right it, 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 it's it's not it's not like the proud boys at all where it's like you know specific you know bad people doing this thing it was like appealing to like you know the oil workers appealing to like the moms it was like it was it was it was primarily used facebook as a means of passing off this type of information and making it seem you know acceptable um the Canadian Yellow Vests, uh, quoting an article from Vice, um, Canadian Yellow Vests, which had over 100,000 members on their Facebook as of May 2019, uh, carries the uh, greatest potential for radicalization leading to violence in Canada right now, according to the executive director of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Uh, the group's description says it, says it was created to protest the carbon tax and build that pipeline and stand against the treason of our country's politicians who have the audacity to sell our country's sovereignty over to the globalist UN and their tyrannical policies. But concerns over Canadians' oil sector appeared to be a very little factor in the discussion that goes on inside these groups. Instead, members are obsessing over with uh, the defending you know, Western civilization from Islam, bashing Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and spreading whatever you know, far-right conspiracy theory is trending at the time. And I cannot overstate the amount that these people hate Trudeau. But it's, it's not for, like, reasons because he wore blackface. Like, they find the most bizarre ways to hate this man. Um... A lot of these people think that Justin Trudeau is the illegitimate son of Fidel Castro. This is a oh, very this, <laughs> this is <laughs> they do kind of look similar. This is uh, a very a very popular yeah, conspiracy yeah, theory in Canada. Yeah. It is like the the way that Trudeau is treated by conservatives is baffling because like I hate Justin Trudeau, but I think I hate him for like reasonable reasons. Like he made a lot bunch of promises around, you know, environment stuff that he didn't follow through on. He Not talks about the game. blackface. He doesn't right? do yeah. he doesn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. He is he does a lot of blackface. It's like, like a shocking a, amount. There's a lot of reasons face. to hate Justin Trudeau, but not because he's the illegitimate son of Fidel Castro leading us to like leading trying to sneak Canada into the socialist UN. Like that's not that's not what he's doing. Like, yeah, among other like, things, if he was the illegitimate son of Fidel Castro. There's a couple of those in the United States. One of his daughters is now like a right wing radio personality in Florida. Oh like, God, that it, makes so much sense. He oh, had a no. lot of he. You know, he's Castro. He did a lot of fucking. Like who? Who, yeah. would, who would care? It's not your your fault. Who your dad is? Yeah. It's just like this is just, it's it's like it's like a weaker, like funnier version of birtherism. Yeah, yeah, like, it's it like is. Can, like, it, it makes sense. It, is, it is like the Canadian version of that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's very weird. He's like Justin Trudeau is very cringy. He lies about all of his promises. Um, he talks a big game. He does a lot of virtue signaling. He does a lot of blackface. Those are all really good reasons to hate. Really, this guy. a lot of blackface. Um, uh, yeah, a lot of blackface. <laughs> but the the way the the ways that they come up with trying to make him seem like a bad dude are just baffling. Um, very very bizarre. So. Um, in an interview with somebody from the Yellow Vests Exposed Anti-Fascist Research Team, which was a very good Twitter account around 2019, it, it's 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 inactive now, but this this was a very good account, a very good account that did really really solid research into the into the Yellow Vest movement. Um, in an interview, they were asked what type of impact they think the Yellow Vests could have in Canada, and th- this was this was their response. 
the image of the threat is no longer the skinhead, blood, blood, blood and honor type. We're dealing with average people who don't understand the impact of the rhetoric. They're calling for the mass death of, of an entire religion, or they're, celebrating the, or they're celebrating the violence against that religion, or they're celebrating violence against government officials. They, they are just one step away from outright fascism, but they can't see that, and they refuse to see that. Which I think is very is a very good um, summary of like how the, the yellow vests y- yeah. were a popular movement specifically on Facebook. Um, an, an, another part of it was the idea of like Western separatism. Um, like you know the people in Western Canada feel ignored. They feel you know put upon. They feel oppressed. Not just for feeling not not just for being Westerners, but they honestly feel oppressed because they're white they, they feel like oh we're focusing on you know only gonna give money to the the brown people that's the kind of thing that they they feel like in in the west um they're like well you know my right to free speech was taken away because of the because of the non-binding bill and refugees can just walk across the border and they make more money than i do so they, they have they have all these all these ideas that are not actually based in reality but they can believe them um, and they, you know, find these news sources that are just echo chambers that reinforce this belief to the point where it, they become radicalized themselves. Um, it's very, it's a very, very common thing, especially around 2019. I was tracking a lot of these Facebook groups around 2019 as well, just in my spare time. Um, cause it's just interesting to watch them I- interact. Um, I'm going to give like, you know, like a, a brief recap of like a, a, a typical yellow vest protest, uh, around like Edmonton. Um, based a bit off of, like, of, uh, of, of, of a few CBC articles. So, you know, protesters would gather around in front of, um, like, uh, the l- legislative building, uh, holding signs, wearing bright yellow vests, um, and they would do this, like, basically every every weekend uh, for, you know, months and months and months on end. Um, some protesters may stand at a podium shouting conspiracy theories about how powerful the Jewish families controlling the world are, um, as one as, as one dude did at the Alberta legislature um, on like January fifth, twenty nineteen, some um, may come sporting red "Make Alberta Great Again" hats. Uh, uh, uh. This was very very popular, very popular. Um, others may prowl the sidelines dressed like they belong to a biker gang. Um, instead of only he- instead of Hell's Angels patches, they have patches that say "Wolves of Odin" and "Canadian Infidels." Oh. Uh, Great. I, I'm going to give you one guess what type of ideology the wolves yeah. of Odin have. Yeah. Clearly they're communists. Yeah, no, they're Nazis. Yeah. Um, but m- m- most of the protesters' voices are not away from, are, like, are not from the fringes. Most of them just have jobs, um, you, know, you know, in like high rises or they, they drive for Uber or they're teachers or pipe fitters or real estate agents. And although their message is, like, muddled by all of these other, like, you know, much more overtly extremist kind of talking points, they all have one thing in common, that they feel like they're getting ignored and being left behind by the liberals in the East. Um, this is echoed by uh, one of the person they got interviewed at these rallies was uh, named Lynn Smith, who was a former uh, oil and gas worker who now works in the school system. Um, they were at a, a Yellow Vest rally on, uh, in January 20, 2019. This was, like, the fourth, fourth, fourth protest she attended. Um, she said, they're just giving away our country. We have no rights anymore. They're taking them away. No more Lord's Prayer. But they're putting prayer, prayer rooms in schools for Muslims. Um, Merry Christmas. You're, 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 not, you're not allowed to say that anymore. It's supposed to be happy holidays. They're changing, they're changing our country, and we've got to stand up and say something about it because, because this is our country. I was born here. My parents are born here. It's wrong. So, you know, I'm sure people in the States are familiar with this type of rhetoric. Um, but just the in, the increased nature of it in Canada was surprising to a lot of Canadians, and like surprising to a lot of like li- liberal Canadians, because they're like, 
but you're you're in Canada. Why are you doing the states thing? Why, why are you doing the thing that they do in the states? Why are you doing it here? Um, but you know, the same reasoning you know people do it in the states is because they feel ignored by politicians. You know, same, that's, that's why this happens in Saskatchewan and Alberta. Um, in BC, way more than it happens in like Ontario, right? It's because you know the more farther away you are from you know the big cities, the less your interests are cared for by a lot of politicians. So the ones that speak to you are these like extremists who are trying to prey on these actual you know financial insecurities. Um, so a, a, a lot, some of the protesters say that they're not like opposed to immigration, but but most of the focus of the Edmonton Yellow Vest rallies has been among, has been about who can come into the country and how they're allowed to get here. Um, uh, one uh, one guy named uh, Brett Webster, the the uh, father of five who works in the construction industry, says they're overwhelming our resources. We can't properly vet these people and make sure it's safe for them to come in and make sure that they're skilled and assimilate into our country and know our ways and our values. So most of the extremist stuff in Canada outside of Quebec does come from does come specifically from Alberta. Uh, you know, the big big cities in Alberta are, are Calgary and Edmonton. But this happens also in a lot of the more rural areas that, you know, mostly used to run on like oil drilling. Um, after losing an election to the more social democratic uh, NDP party in 2015, uh, the two provincial conservative parties in Alberta had their own little mini U- unite the right and merged together in 2017 leading to their success at the polls in 2019. So then the conservatives have since then done a whole bunch of stuff in Alberta, uh, like cutting down their health care. Actually, a lot, of the, a lot of the conservative voters don't like, but like they voted for, because that was the platform, you just were being scared of brown people, so you voted for the conservatives. But now, but now your health care is cut. So that's, that's how politics works. Um, so that, that's kind of a brief summary of the Yellow Vest movement and how it, how it gained a lot of popularity. Um, they, 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 they would do rallies around like polling centers. They would, they, would, they, would, they would attack people. They would have, you know, violent rallies where a lot of like older, older men who were in the Yellow Vest movement would be, you know, pr- pretty violent towards, you know, anyone in their area during a protest. Um, but they, they kind of, kind of around COVID, the Yellow Vests kind of sp- sputtered out. A lot of the people in these Facebook groups got, you know, moved into other conspiracy theory groups, um, oh and the LFS movement kind of lost its train. Um, so that's where we're kind of going to end for today, is with the kind of the LFS kind of fizzling out, and in the next part, we'll talk about what's happening from like 2019 and the election that year to like kind of the present fascist rumblings um, inside different sectors of Canadian politics. So yeah, that is that's my that's my very very brief write up of of right-wing populism and extremism in Canada uh, pre-2019. Pre Great. Yep, it's fun. It's not mm-hmm. fun. It's, 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 it's upsetting. Um, and it's, you know, it's a lot of the same problems we have here of, you know, politicians really ignoring people in certain parts of the country, wow. which provi- provi- provide very fertile recruiting ground for a lot of extremists. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to all end well. That is our that is our that is our official policy. Yep. That everything is going to turn out great. Yeah, seems fine. I mean, the, well, the, like there is actual ways of preventing this from happening, right? It's not it's not, it's not a hopeless thing. We can actually do it if we want to. Uh, just people with power to do it don't well, don't don't like doing it. Yeah. yeah. Cool and good. That is the message of the pod, Sophie. Cool and good. Aww. So, yep, that's that's Canadian fascism, part one. Cool. Um, I, I would recommend if people want to learn more about the Canadian uh, uh, Yellow Vests, check out the Yellow Vest Exposed Twitter account. Uh, there's also like there's also articles about them. They were a, a very a very good anti-fascist research team. 
Um, yeah, I would just recommend if, if you want to learn more about this, this specific movement, all of their work on it has been great. Um, so yeah, shout out, sh- shout out to Yellow Vests Exposed. That's the pod. Yeah. Podcast. All right. Yep. Well, go get your Tim Hortons and tomorrow. Yeah, go get your Tim Hortons and your I don't know maple F- syrup and go find a moose. Find follow, a Canadian and just start screaming in their face. Cool Zone Media or Happen Here Pod on the Twits and the Inst. Just uh, the scream at the Bye bye everybody. Bye. Hey. Hey. Goodbye. Hey. Hey. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melody. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hello, uh, wow. Nope, that's not it. Nope, uh, that's it. Garrison, <laughs> we've started the episode. <laughs> no. Yes, we did. I didn't want to. The episode late. has begun. It cannot be unbegunned. 
Oh, that's let's, horrible. Uh, let's let's roll right into it. Let's talk yeah, more about okay. fascism in Canada, Garrison. So, well, welcome. This is it could happen here um, today. The uh, today the here is, uh, is is Canada. That is the that is where it could happen. Um, this is going to be part two of my little deep dive um, into Canadian fascism and the far right rumblings in general in the Great White North. And oh God, that is a bad. Bad nickname for Canada, the Great White North. <laughs> did not, uh, not inaccurate. Did not really think that one through. <laughs> Oopsie doodle. Um, maybe they did. Maybe they, yeah, there's a good chance they did. <laughs> anyway, um, in the last episode, we left off with the Canadian yellow vests um, and a, you know, a frightening increase in Islamophobia and anti-immigration rhetoric around late 2017 and 2018 after Trump's election. And we started the last episode by talking about one of Canada's uh, first fascist political parties. And we're going to start part two by talking about Canada's new neo-fascist political party that also got started inside the province of Quebec, uh, just like the National Unity Party did. Uh, This one is called the People's Party of Canada. Um, Before we get into the People's Party, I'm first going to give some background on the founder of the party, Maxine Bernier, Um, and that's how how I'm going to say his name. Um, No one at me. It's good enough. Um, Bernier was born in Quebec in 1963 and is the son of a conservative talk radio host turned politician. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny how that keeps (laughs) happening? Yep. Yeah, so... Bernier uh, entered politics in 2006. Um, he ran as the Conservative Party candidate for the House of Commons in the same riding district that his father had represented uh, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Stephen Harper, leader of the new United Conservative Party, initially wanted Maxine's father to re-enter politics, but Bernier Sr. was less keen on that idea and instead told Harper that, he, that uh, perhaps his son should run in his place. Oh, radio and nepotism. Amazing. Radio and nepotism. Yep. And yep. and politicians and yeah. Starting so, great. It is it is starting great. Um so at, at this point, Bernier was more of like a free market libertarian libertarian type guy. Uh, you know, still with some of the same like conservative I- I- immigration stuff that's that's common in Quebec, but he was more of just like a, a libertarian dude. Bernier easily won the riding. Ridings are what we call districts here in the States, ranking at 67% of the popular vote, which was the largest majority for a conservative politician outside of the province of Alberta. So he, he, did, he did very well. Uh, Bernier, who had a background in business, uh, quickly rose through the ranks of the conservative party. Uh, within the same year, he was appointed to be a cabinet minister in the Harper government. Um, and he worked as a as an uh, industry minister from 2006 to 2007 before being promoted to a foreign affairs minister. Then in, in 2011, he was appointed as he was appointed as minister of the state. So in in spring of 2016, after the fifth after the 2015 federal election, uh, Bernier put in his bid to be the new elected Conservative Party leader. Um, so th- I'm, I'm going to briefly explain how Canadian elections work. You you don't vote for a prime minister. You vote for a party within your specific district. If you if if your party wins, they get a seat in parliament. Whoever has the most seats in parliament, that's whose prime minister gets elected. So whoever is whoever is the leader of the party, they will be prime minister if that party gets the most seats. So in 2016, Bernier put in his bid to be the new Conservative Party leader. Uh, he got remarkably close to securing the spot uh, as leader of the Conservatives. In the final Great. round of voting, he received 49.05% of the vote, 
Uh, losing to Saskatchewan conservative politician Andrew Scheer, who got 50.9%. So oh boy. Less, less than a 2% difference. He was so close to becoming leader of the conservative party. Like, ridiculous. So, yeah. A- after his extremely slight loss, he continued to work in Scheer's conservative party for a few years. Um, if you remember from the last episode, around this time was when the Islamophobia and anti-immigration talking points were starting to gain a new popularity. And Bernier followed along with this trend. He would tweet out about the dangers of extreme multiculturalism. And he had like an increasingly racist and divisive rhetoric, and that kind of caused some drama within the conservative establishment. So in August of 2018, around the same time the Yellow Vest movement in Canada was starting up, uh, Bernier uh, resigned from the Conservative Party with the stated intention of forming a new federal populist far-right political party. Um, here, here, here's a segment from his resignation speech, and he, he does talk in a very thick French accent. I am not going to do that. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. No. 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 <laughs> I'm helping here. No, yeah, you're, you're really helping me channel, channel the energy. Um, Sacre bleu! <laughs> Wow, I really that was that, that was just direct audio Horrible. from his speech. Yeah, Horrible. that was. Instead of leading as a principled conservative and defending the interests of Canada and Canadians, Andrew Scheer is following the Trudeau liberals. I was told that internal polling is showing that the liberals' response to Trump is popular, and that in six months, if the polls change, the party's stand may change too. The same thing happened in reaction to my tweets on diversity and multiculturalism. This is another crucial debate for the future of our country. Do we want to emphasize our ethnic and religious differences or exploit them to buy votes as the liberals are doing? Or emphasize what unites us and the values that can guarantee social cohesion? Just like other Western societies grappling with this issue, a large number of Canadians, and certainly the vast majority of conservatives, are worried that we are heading in the wrong direction. But it's not correct to raise such questions. (laughs) So yeah, and I think the, honestly one of the main reasons why uh, uh, Bernier hasn't been super successful um, is because of his accent. Like uh, he is—it's harder for Protestant white Canadians to support him because he talks with a French Canadian accent. Um, if 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 he talked in like good English, I think he he would have he would have won conservative leadership. Um, and his populist party would be way more popular than 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 it is now. So critical so, support so, to, yeah. to other French racism is preventing the racists from being racist yes. enough. Yes, you love to see. You it. love to see it. Yeah. <laughs> you certainly see it. We do. We do see it. So Bernier faced some pushback from his conservative colleagues, including Stephen Harper, um, of trying to divide the right and split the right of center vote. Um, and some of the less socially conservative members of the main conservative party uh, decried Bernier's departure and subsequent New People's Party as just a plain attempt to pander to xenophobia and racist right-wingers. But Bernier went right to work and ran enough candidates under his new party to secure a spot in the federal election debates that were like, that you know, how we watch presidential debates, same thing, but these have, you know, multiple candidates because there are multiple parties, same thing. Uh, but basically, he, 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 he was able to get in the televised debates. Um, the PPC, uh, which is the People's Party of Canada, I'm just going to say the PPC now because it sounds funny. Um, they started going viral on the internet after pictures of massive billboards with Bernier's face and big text that said "Say no to mass immigration." This 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 got very this got very memey uh, around like 20 uh, t- 2019. These big these big PPC billboards. Um, 
I'm, I'm going I'm to read a bit from a write-up, and it's going down by some local uh, Montreal anti-fascists. There have been suggestions that the PPC spokesperson and architect of its public relations strategy, Martin Mass, has been key to its embrace of the far right. Mass was owner of the publisher of the Québécois Libre, which is a, an online libertarian news outlet that shut down in 2016, and that PP, but that PPC's cozy relationship with racists is primarily due to the influence of this one person is highly doubtful. However, it's the PPC is positioning itself as the option of choice for those who find the conservative party insufficiently right-wing. Racism is clearly just one of the most effective tools for such a strategy. Witnessing PPC billboards and tweets against mass immigration, also tweets about being against Antifa, and uh, Bernier's diatribe about radical Islam being the biggest threat to freedom and peace and security in the world today, and how he complains about other parties are, are complacent and pandering to Islamists and promising that the PPC will make no compromise with the totalitarian ideology. A number of media articles have revealed the far-right connections to people active in the PPC as organizers and members whose signatures were used for the PPC to gain official party status. Um, for instance, uh, Derek Horn, the PPC volunteer and a security agent who accompanied Bernier at, at a variety of events and media interviews, he has been revealed to be a founding member of the neo-fascist Canadian Nationalist Party, which we, we briefly mentioned in the last episode. Um, Sean Walker is an American immigrant and organizer with the PPC in St. Catharines, um, as well as one of the people who signed on for PPC to be an official party. He was revealed to be the president of the National Alliance, a U.S.-based neo-Nazi organization oh, in boy. 2007. Yay! Um, he was also National Alliance. He was also convicted of hate crimes at the time for violence against people of color. Um, following these revelations, Walker was expelled from the PPC, and uh, Bernard claimed that he'd slipped through the party's vetting process. However, it was uh -huh. also revealed that Bernard follows him on Twitter. Um, <laughs> others who signed up for the for the PPC to be an official party include Janice Balch, a founding member of the Patriotic Europeans against the Islamification of Occident. And also Justin L. Smith, leader of this of the Sudbury chapter of the Soldiers of Odin. So a whole bunch of whole bunch of fascist people are working work, working for the party. Um, and un unsurprisingly, a number of a number of candidates have made headlines about their as their you know social media posts from the past and present have surfaced, featuring like racism, Islamophobia, and uh, a lot of spreading of far right conspiracy theories. You know that was just kind of common. There's too many, honestly, to mention. <laughs> Um, and it's it's not just that the PPC has a few bad apples in it. It's like the whole the whole party is rife with these kind of one these kind of sentiments. Um, one gauge of this and the sign and a sign that like this is intentional is the as uh, looking at the candidates who have left the party or have been kicked out when it became clear that there would be no uh, condemnation of the far right from the upper ranks. Uh, there was like, and, and just in like twenty nineteen alone, there was like three candidates who were e who left or were either kicked out. Um, because they, you know, had objections to the racism rampant within the party. They, they were like complaining about, "Hey, these guys seem kind of racist." And then they were kicked out of the party, or, 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 or they left. So, yeah, that's that's a uh, not a good problem to have. Um, so, in in uh, finishing up this this little quote here, um, indeed, a cursory a, a cursory uh, look at the Facebook pages of PPC candidates reveals what's been really noteworthy is how selective the news stories about racist tweets or Facebook posts have been. Almost every PPC candidate in Quebec has uh, recently and repeatedly shared articles from climate denialist sources, including many with a conspiratorial bent. Uh, a candidate. For Papa New even produced his own YouTube expose revealing how George Soros is behind an international global conspiracy theory 
to crash economies and make money spending um, uh, panic about climate change. Uh, secondary to climate denial, there's you know, a lot of fears around free speech and mass immigration, uh, which are both recurring themes in the PPC candidates. And roughly one in five have recently shared news articles from what we would deem uh, national populist or far-right sources, including lesmanchettes.com, which is the website of the French language, of the French language translator of the Christchurch um, Manifesto. Um, Jesus. And th- 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 the guy who runs that website is also involved with organizing in the Montreal, in the Montreal chapter of the Yellow Vests. Sorry. Um, yeah, so he, he, he both translated the manifesto, and he's also running the Montreal Yellow Vest movement. So that's fun. Um, it's not fun. It's bad. Um, André Pytri? Wow, that is very French. So you remember, so... I didn't learn French in Canada because I was in a weird Christian private school. Otherwise, I could be a lot better at this job. Um, yeah. But so, so anyway, uh, there's there's a there's a there's a there's just like a far right YouTube channel uh, with this guy uh, called uh, Studio, who a lot of his stuff was shared. Um, and there's a more like eccentric and sporadic mix of of, of other news sources, including uh, Unite the Right attendee Faith Goldie, who also ran for mayor of Toronto and got third place. Um, Quebec-based QAnon figure uh, Alexis Trudel, um, and the alt-right YouTuber Black Pigeon Speaks. Of course, the main Yellow Vests page was shared a lot, and also sources from the highly racist uh, The Voice of Europe. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of a lot of not not great news sources being being shared by the PPC. Um, So that is the gist of the People's Party. As of 2019, um, overall, their performance in the 2019 election was kind of a flop. Uh, Bernard lost his own seat in Quebec. No PPC <laughs> candidates got into office, and the party only managed to get one. Uh, and the party only managed to get 1.6 percent of the total national popular vote. So that's good. It only got 1.6 percent of all of the votes in Canada. So we're, we're, we're going to take a break from the People's Party for now, and we will circle back towards it um, at the end. But uh, after, after an yeah. ad break, we will, we will talk about the, uh, what the main Conservative Party was up to during this time and, oh, uh, no. and a little bit after the 2019 election. So Yeah. Yep, and now the cat's just blocking the whole thing. All right. We're back. The cat is in the bathroom. I moved my cat because they were blocking the camera. Hello, um, People's Party, not doing great in the first election. That's fun. Let's see what the regular conservatives were up to. I'm sure it was things that are just good and cool. <sighs> if I know anything about conservatives, it's that they're not... <sighs> not hashtag Racist. problematic? Yeah. yeah. Just Let's just go, Garrison. Okay. Just, just go. <laughs> I'll just be sad over here, and the audience can know that I'm sad the whole time you're talking. I would rather this episode be not such a not such a downer, but it, it's it's hard to make these kind of an upper. It's well, uh, I'll, I'll make a bargain with the audience that if they listen, I will I will do my French accent at least one more time. Oh boy! I will say, doing the French accent. This is the happiest I have seen Robert all day. Like, <laughs> well, the he smile is, on his he does face. look very tired. <laughs> you so. you did say earlier, Garrison, and this was very funny that you'd be better at your job if you could speak French. But yeah. given what we are here at at Cool Zone Media, you would actually be much worse at your job. If you could pronounce anything. Um, and in fact, if you if, if you were to speak French, I would I would fire you immediately. It's actually a requirement that, that you can't pronounce things to work no. for our, our network. Certainly not French. There's other languages you're allowed to know how to pronounce, but not French. No habla français. 
Perfect. A raise. Yeah. He gets a raise. <laughs> <laughs> so let's pick up right after Maxine Bernier lost the conservative leadership to Andrew Scheer in 2016, uh, in 2017. Um, Sheer won the leadership on a uh, on on like a platform of classical financial conservatism and a slightly more socially moderate platform. Um, when Sheer got into office, though, one of the things he faced criticism for, even among the conservative caucus, was his association with a little <laughs> media with was his association with a little media outlet called Rebel Media. Oh, good. Um, yeah. Oh no. So, but yeah. most most listeners may not know what Rebel Media is, but you've certainly seen their stuff or felt their effect. Yeah, it's like the rough draft of Breitbart and also Canadian. And Canadian, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Canadian. Uh, so uh, Rebel Media is a Canadian far right neo fascist propaganda outlet started in 2015 that has a, a lot of a lot of Breitbarty vibes. Um, Rebel Media. Yeah, Breitbartesque. Uh, Rebel Media hosts and contributors have included a white nationalist and white genocide proponent Lauren Southern um, and Proud Boy founder Gavin McGuinness. Um, McGuinness pr- produced a, quote, satirical video for Rebel called 10 Things I Hate About the Jews. Um, Jesus fucking Christ. Oh, yeah. <sighs> yeah. So it, 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 it is worth noting that both Southern and McGuinness are Canadian. Um, there are actually a lot of uh, alt-right figures that are Canadian. Of course, yeah. we have we have Lauren Southern, Gavin McGuinness, um, we have Stephen Crowder, uh, Stefan Molyneux, and of course Jordan Peterson. All of those people are, are Canadian, and most Dr. of them. Jordan Balthazar Peterson, yeah. Most of them still live in Canada <laughs> when they're still not alive. In Yes, he's still alive. He made he made an insane tweet the other day. God, he made the most unhinged tweet. tweet. No, that tweet made it all worthwhile, baby. He got everyone go check his Twitter feed. It is amazing. You can you can hear his brain shorting out when you read that tweet. Like you need to find this. You need to find the tweet. It is it is just ah, it is the most beautiful piece of poetry I've ever read. It's it's like somebody taught a stroke how to type. (laughs) (laughs) It makes no sense. God, it's so good. Um I, I'm going to quote an article by uh, globalnews.ca um, on Andrew Scheer and Rebel Media. Quote, Despite a string of controversies faced by Canadian right-wing media outlet The Rebel, including allegations of downplaying the Holocaust, uh, newly minted <laughs> Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer has so far continued to make himself available to the company that other uh, prominent conservative politicians have criticized for its controversial reporting and activism. Scheer's campaign organization also has a direct connection to The Rebel. His campaign manager, Hamish Marshall, is listed as the director of the company's federal incorporation records, which show its most recent annual gathering meeting was in February of this year. Following the leadership election in Toronto on Saturday, Scheer granted one-on-one interviews with a handful of major media organizations, including a face-to-face interview with The Rebel's Ottawa correspondent, Brian Lilly. Prior to his convention interview, Scheer appeared on The Rebel in February in a studio interview with host Faith Goldie on her show, uh, On the Hunt. At the end of the discussion, uh, Goldie asked Shear if, if he would agree to go on a duck hunting trip with her after uh, after he wins the leadership on Canada Day, which he agreed to. Um, we briefly mentioned Faith Goldie earlier and her connection to the People's Party um, and her brief uh, campaign for the Toronto mayor. But here's some more background on her um, and her okay. coverage and her coverage of the Unite the Right rally uh, for Rebel Media, uh, quoting from uh, Winnipeg Free Press. 
In the course of her dispatches, Goldie argued the events in Charlottesville were evidence of a rising white racial consciousness that was going to change the political landscape in America. She also went to All right, great... well, she's actually not wrong there. <laughs> that was... Yeah, she's <laughs> not wrong, but I think not she's... incorrect. <laughs> she's on the other side of the aisle on whether this is a good or bad thing. Um, yeah. She went to great lengths t- to laud the 20-point Metapolitical Manifesto composed by white nationalist leader Richard Spencer, a document that includes calls to organize uh, uh, states along ethnic and racial divides and celebrates the superiority of white America. Faith uh, Goldie describes Spencer's manifesto as robust and well thought out. Uh, Goldie was fired by Rebel in mid-August in 2017, but not due to her participation in Unite the Right, she was fired for appearing on a Daily Stormer podcast to discuss Unite the Right. Oh, good. So, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, that's that's fine. So, yeah. That's fine. Nice to have her interviewing conservative leader Andrew Scheer. Uh, asked for his reaction to Unite the Right and Rebel Media um, after what happened in Charlottesville in 2017. Uh, Shear, who had previously been interviewed by Rebel multiple times, uh, finally disavowed the outlets, saying, look, I believe there's a fine line between covering events and giving a platform to groups who are promoting a vile and disgusting point of view. I won't be granting interviews going forward. So that's nice that it took someone dying in Charlottesville to realize that you probably shouldn't talk to the fascist media source. Um... So, in the aftermath of Unite the Right, the mainstream conservatives kind of had to tread carefully around social issues because it's like, oh yeah, they're, they're still Nazis, we probably shouldn't be pandering to them. Um, but as more time and distance let the air cool, some conservatives went back to the same old rhetoric around the 2019 election. Um, uh, for instance, in his 2019 election campaign, uh, Tom Kamick, uh, the parliamentary representative, uh, one of the parliamentary representatives for Calgary, Alberta, wrote out and spread fo- uh, flyers with the all caps with the, the all caps header of "Crisis at the Border." Uh, with text reading, Dear Constituent, the Independent Auditor General of Canada has published a scathing report confirming that the Ottawa Liberals have failed to safely and responsibly manage Canada's borders. Since Justin Trudeau irresponsibly tweeted out that Canada would open its borders to anyone seeking entry, the number of people illegally crossing the border into Canada from the United States has surged past 1,000 a month, with almost 20,000 people illegally entering in 2018 alone. And while speaking to voters, Kamek uh, repeatedly insisted that all the problems of people uh, legally crossing the Canadian border isn't a symptom of a failure of systems to respond to a growing crisis, but merely a failure for Border Patrol to, uh, to assert control over people. Um, quotes and flyer courtesy of, of, about this t- uh, Tom uh, Kemick guy are courtesy of uh, Dan Olson of Folding Ideas. He's a great Canadian documentarian who released a magnificent piece on QAnon and conspiracy theories last year on his YouTube channel, uh, Folding ideas. Overall, I really, really like Dan. He, he makes very good stuff. Um, so th- thank you to him for sending me those, those, those flyers. Um, anyway, uh, during the 2019 election, uh, Scheer led the Conservatives to gain a total of 26 seats in, uh, the par- inside Parliament, going from 95 up to 121. But they did finish 36 seats behind the Liberals, despite beating the Liberals in the popular vote by uh, 1.3%. Uh, so that was a uh, 34.4% for conservatives and 33.1% of the popular vote for liberals. The margin was just over like 240,000 votes. Um, the liberals lost 20 seats in the election and the NDP lost 15 seats. And this was the first time since, t- uh, since 1979 that a party won the most seats without also winning the popular vote. Um, what, what pushed the conservatives over on the popular vote 
was due to you know extremely high conservative turnout in uh, in 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 various in various writings. So basically, more conservatives voted in certain writings than they usually do. So even if the liberals still win the district, there were still more conservative votes to be counted. Um, and also, they basically swept the prairie provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan, where they won 70% of the vote and 65% of the vote, uh, res- respectively. Uh, but their victories in those states and their higher turnout did not convert into many seats because the, the less population-dense areas have fewer federal ridings and fewer available seats. Um, and the, the, the liberals had to rely heavily uh, for seats in uh, Ontario, the, you know, the most populous province that includes cities like uh, Toronto um, and you know other a, a few other big cities. So you know Canada doesn't have the most democratic system. Like so, the same way you know we, we, in the states we're familiar with you know people losing popular votes um, but still getting elected president and stuff. You know in Canada it's 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 a little bit different because of how you vote for parties in your own little district. Um, but you know it's still not perfect, right? Because like I it is it it does feel weird for the leader of uh, the leader of the country to not have his party to not have also won the popular vote because of how, you know, districts work out and how higher turnout in some areas doesn't mean that it's going to have more seats. Um, you know, but the other side of things here is that like Canada also d- doesn't have ranked choice. So like still the majority of people voted for left of center candidates. If you include, you know, the green party, the NDP and the liberals. So even though liberals lost the popular vote, there still was like a majority left of center voting. So if they, had, if they had ranked choice, maybe the results would have been different. So Canada's system, it, it definitely is imperfect for how they do elections. Um, I would I would prefer ranked choice as, you know, basically every, basically I would prefer that for like every country if they're going to have elections. Um, so yeah, just kind of explaining why they can lose the popular vote but still, you know, still win a majority controlling government. Um, so after the election, uh, Scheer announced he was resigning as head of the Conservatives in December of 2019. Uh, this was after it was revealed that he had used party funds for his children's own private schooling. So good for him. Um, a new bid for conservative leadership went into effect. We're going to mainly focus on two candidates here. Uh, there was uh, Aaron O'Toole and Derek Solon. Um, O'Toole fancies himself as another kind of like classic financial conservative and a social moderate. He feels more like the old progressive conservative candidates from back before the 2003 Unite the Right merger. Um, we got some like John McCain vibes here. Um, but Derek Solon is more similar to the farther right parts of the U.S.'s current Republican Party, like anti-abortion, anti-LGBT, racist tweets, etc. Um, but a- as a whole, uh, Solon's extremism was rejected by Canadian conservatives. Um, he got only he got like only fourth he got fourth place with 15 percent of the vote during the first round of voting, um, and ultimately O'Toole won leadership after three rounds of votes. Um, and O'Toole now has the has the new challenge of trying to appeal to the Canadian Conservatives' more moderate wing, as well as the more Trumpian wing that's developed the past few years. He's been relatively successful in crafting like a, a boring, polite Canadian version of Trump's nationalism with slogans like "Canada First" and "Take Canada Back." Um, you know, despite supporting trade deals, outsourcing Canadian jobs to cheaper overseas markets, hmm. because they never actually mean what they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and the and as the liberals have grown more aware of Canada's bloody history and have like toned down the red and white maple leaf patriotism, the Conservative Party under O'Toole has seized on this opportunity to make Canadian patriotism more of a right leaning staple, just like patriotism is you know it's more of like a right wing thing in the states. So basically, after we we're like, oh yeah, residential schools were bad, Canada's kind of fucked up. Liberals are like, okay, we maybe shouldn't be 
So we shouldn't be waving our maple leaf flags everywhere. Maybe we're not a perfect country. The conservatives are like, no, you have to be proud to be Canadian. So they've kind of taken patriotism to be their new thing. Well, previously, it was much more of like a liberal thing. The Islamophobia and overt religious bigotry under O'Toole has been slightly trimmed down, um, and climate change has at least been mentioned as existing. Um, but there has also been increased discussion on trying to hack down Canada's health care and privatize more aspects of it, which... Yeah, good job, guys. Take away the only good part of Canada. <laughs> um, I like uh, the province of Alberta under uh, Jason Kenney has done this to a disastrous effect, um, raising the cost of, of medical care for lower class people, many of whom voted conservative. Um, I have family in Alberta, and the, just the past five years, the changes to the healthcare system there has been horrible. Um, it's not. It's, it's not great. So basically, what, what what O'Toole wants is he he wants he wants to base, just, just privatize more elements of it. He has a specific term he uses, like he wants like a he wants to like split the Fed like the like the taxpayer healthcare and privatized healthcare into two sections, and you can choose which one to join in. Anyway, it's silly. Um, O'Toole did take a wee little stance to distance himself from the more extreme wings of his party when he decided to remove MP Derek Solon from the caucus. Uh, O'Toole announced that Solon would not be allowed to run as a candidate for the uh, for the Conservative Party in the next election either, saying, uh, Racism is a disease of the soul, repugnant to our core values. It has no place in our country and has no place in the Conservative Party of Canada. I won't tolerate it. Um, also, last year, O'Toole refused to say whether he thinks systemic racism exists. Um, hmm. The, uh, the, but the decision to remove uh, Solon was uh, made after it was revealed that he accepted a donation from the Canadian Nazi Paul Fromm during, <laughs> uh, during Solon's bid for uh, conservative leadership. Uh, back in the 90s, uh, Fromm was a figurehead of the Canadian far-right movement appearing at Heritage Front rallies and uh, also caught on video at a party celebrating Hitler's birthday, uh, which he lost his high school teaching job over. So, Well, yeah. look. It's just polite to celebrate a guy's birthday, you know, whether or not he's Hitler. Under no circumstances do you gotta <laughs> s- celebrate Hitler's birthday. Hitler's birthday. <laughs> this, this, is, this isn't a hot take. <laughs> um, so th- th- there has been a bit of the ri- there has been a bit of a rift in the Conservative Party over how much Trumpian rhetoric should be allowed in the Canadian Conservative Party, um, and this kind of rift has definitely increased after January sixth. The, the problem for conservative politicians is that to win elections, they need to appeal to the largest swath of voters. Um, and that includes more socially conservative and increasingly far-right rural folks. But if they go too far, they'll lose the moderates to the liberal party. So you have to, it's like this delicate balance. But to kind of give you like an overview of what the current state of the conservative like votership is, um, four in ten of the Conservative Party of Canada members, so you know, people signed up to vote in the party, uh, you know, r- regular people, um, Four in ten would say that they would have voted for Trump. Four in ten say that they think Democrats stole the twenty twenty presidential election, and cool. four in ten say that the conservative uh, and, and four in ten believe that the January sixth riot was staged or right. was done by the Democrats or done Amazing. by Antifa. So that's kind of right. the state of the conservative party in Canada for like the for the voters. So you know politicians have to kind of in order to win they need they need still they still need, still need to appeal to those people, but they don't want to do that thing usually like they usually don't like usually they're the like a big talking point is like rejecting the divisive politics of the of of the of the united states like that's like a big thing people say in canada is that like they 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 don't want it to become like you know like a a fighting match because like the the other main difference between canada's elections and america's elections is like 
America is like always an election season, right? Like every, you know, even after each election, it's like you feel like campaigns start right up again. Um, Canada's campaigns only run like a few months before the election. Like, like it is not like a yeah, always a thing. Yeah, that's one of those things you guys do objectively better than us. Yes. And a lot of the world does. It's not just Canada. The idea that like, oh, elections are terrible. We should spend as little time as it's possible like, it's having like them. Two, <laughs> like two or three months of campaigning. That's it. Like yeah. it's, it's not It's not like a two-year, four-year thing. No, that is a thing that we should absolutely – the election should be about 11 minutes from, yeah. from the start of the campaign to the votes. <laughs> Everybody gets a minute to explain their uh, their politics, and then we vote, and then we throw them into the sea. Yeah. So, <sighs> All right, tr- trying to trying to craft marketing to the divided right wing, it's been interesting to watch. You know, th- there's like videos of O'Toole walking through you know downtowns with pride flags in the background, and you know, featuring visible like minority Canadians intermingling. But then you also have O'Toole like railing against cancel culture. Fueling suggestions that the, that the liberal government's pandemic response is part of a socialist great reset and pulling out the dog whistle on like China and the coronavirus, you know, as often as he can. Um, O'Toole's in the past also downplayed Canadians' residential schools program um, and described uh, the efforts of activists pushing to removal of statues of the of the residential school architects as stupid. Um, so I, I I do think O'Toole prefers a conservative party resistant to far right branding, but he knows he needs to appeal to those voters in order to win elections. So it's, it's 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 just it's a thing that's not great, but it's interesting to watch. Um, in August of 2021, Justin Trudeau, noted blackface appreciator, uh, called <laughs> a snap election in an effort to gain more parliamentary seats in hopes of getting a majority liberal government. Something a prime minister should not be allowed to do, by the way. Like, a prime minister should not be able to decide when to do elections. That is, like, right. no. should totally right. not be a thing. <laughs> like, what? No. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. But anyway, um, as the 2021 snap election ramped up, the Conservative Party under O'Toole made some uh, extremely questionable choices for their marketings and their slogans. Um, what does the phrase secure the future bring to mind? Uh, Anything? The 14, the 14 words. words. Yeah. yeah. So that became the new tagline for the entire Conservative Party under O'Toole. Oh, Great. Boy. Okay, sure. We got we got we got we got secure the future billboards. We got we got we got websites conservative.ca slash secure the future. Uh, we got mailers, magazine covers, all emblazoned with secure the future or secure our future. Um, it's and you know what'll secure our future, Garrison? The 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 Chevron ads that keep popping up. Uh huh. Yeah. That we keep Chevron trying to get rid is of. securing our future. Yeah. It's great. It's, You're it's, welcome. It's a great time. Chevron appreciators is everyone oh we're back and just appreciating chevron just like justin trudeau appreciates just like justin trudeau yeah so secure the future great slogan not a good slogan bad um i'm gonna read a bit from a mailer that went out to conservative party members after o'toole won leadership quote okay I firmly believe Canada has everything it uh, has everything it takes to recover from COVID nineteen and enjoy a prosperous future if we have a government that knows how to secure the future. If the, if the yeah. tru- if the Trudeau Liberals stay in power, they'll continue spending taxpayer money at pandemic era levels long before long after the virus is behind us. The result: all the things we love about Canada will be in serious jeopardy. Our debt will become out of control, and they'll never be able to get back the Canada you and I grew up in—the kind of Canada our children and grandchildren deserve. So uh, later on in the page, O'Toole says we need to stand up to the Chinese Communist Party and hold Beijing accountable for sabotaging our economy and taking jobs from Canadian workers. 
Um, and on August 16th, the Canadian Conservative Party Twitter account tweeted out, and I quote, Canada's recovery program will secure the future for you, your children, and your, grand- and your grandchildren. So that's fun. Oh, also, also, guess, yeah, how, guess, guess how many words is in that last sentence? 14. It's 14 of them. Yeah. Yeah, we're go- going back to calling Canada Clanada again. Uh, so yeah, that's it's fun. like a dog whistle, but except for, you know, a dog whistle, only dogs can hear it. it just except everyone yeah, hears it. Yeah, it's you're just, you're it's just, just a whistle. It. It's, just a, it's just a regular whistle. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, yeah. It's, it's that he just tweeted it tweet yeah so as anyway um as o'toole was getting all secure the future pilled um canada's actual far-right populist party the people's party was gaining much more popularity um amid the pandemic and the anti-mask anti-lockdown anti-vax protests the COVID 19 pandemic was a gift to the far right in general as it allowed the injection and proliferation of conspiracy theories to accelerate at levels almost never before seen and provided fair recruiting ground to gain new followers. Uh, the PPC latched onto this and was extremely successful. They were, you know, they sponsored protests, they did a whole bunch of campaigns that are around like anti mask stuff, anti vaccine, you know, all, all, all of it. Um, so the PPC was able to be not just a safe harbor for anti-immigration, white nationalists, neo-Nazis, and other far-right groups, but also now more mainstream anti-lockdown, anti-vax, and anti-government protesters, as well as, you know, gun rights activists and some general rural workers feeling left behind from even the conservative party. So the PPC has changed from a niche white nationalist party to a full-blown far-right populist force. What Bernier and the, and the PPC have done so effectively since the pandemic is to use the broad concerns around COVID and freedom and the more, you know, mainstream concerns about economic anxieties, job loss, loss of businesses, immigration, and changing culture, and manage, and manage to roll all of these things up into one tight package, which is really appealing to a lot of Canadians who are very anxious about the state of their country, especially amid the COVID-19 pandemic. So the results of the September snap election, which was, you know, last month, uh, were basically the same as the 2019 election, um, except the PPC went from 1.6% of the vote to 5% of the vote. A, oh a big, a big change. Uh, they, that means they were ranking above the Green Party and nearly tying the Bloc Québécois. So they made like Québécois. I know, like one percent to five percent doesn't seem like tons, but like this is a really big jump for a brand new party, um, especially especially if they're ahead of the Green Party and tying the Bloc Party. That is like a notable uh, shift. Um, the University of Gulaf professor uh, of, of political science, Tamara Small, said, that, said this after the results of the last snap election. Quote, I think the only leader who's ecstatic about last night's results is Bernier. I don't think they're going anywhere. I think it seems that he's taken the populism and attached it to far-right politics. The idea that Canada was immune to this sort of far-right populism, the idea that Canada was going to be free from the populism that we saw in Europe, like what Nigel Farage is in the UK, uh, but I think lots of people are wondering if Bernier is just going to say, I'm not here to form an actual government, I'm just here to challenge the system, and use that as a way of gaining mass support. Um, after uh, CTV News uh, emailed the PPC for comment for their post-election story, uh, the party spokesperson sent back a one-line email response. I don't respond to requests from leftist activists masquerading as journalists. Get lost. So that's fun. Uh, also, in late September, uh, Bernier's Twitter account was temporarily suspended for encouraging his supporters to attack journalists. Ah, yeah, great. Yeah, just not like I'm okay with criticizing journalists and stuff because most journalists are like not great. But when you're using your political Twitter account to just like tell people to just go attack the press, usually it's a bad sign of a, of a, like a political party. Usually, it's just like yeah, political parties when they do that usually leads to bad things. 
Um, we are going to talk about one, one kind of wrapping up here. We're going to talk about one Ontario People's Party candidate named uh, Mario Greco, who is a uh, an, another uh, another high school teacher um, and self proclaimed game developer. Um, of, of, of a few years ago, I, I, I see Chris's wincing because, like, you know, this can't lead oh, to good things. No. The gamers, it can't be good. <laughs> so, a few years ago, uh, Greco made a video game called Happy Culture Shootout. Um, oh, good. Qu- oh. Quoting an article from PressProgress.ca. Happy Culture Shootout is a Space Invaders-style game that allows players to control a spaceship that shoots laser beams at characters of various identity groups. Quote, this game is about an alien ordered to invade Earth and transport all humans to Happy Land, Greco says on his personal website, which includes other games that he authored, like Die More, which is about a young misunderstood oh hero God. who seeks to liberate post-war Germany. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. In a, in, a since deleted vi- <laughs> in a since deleted video obtained by Press Progress, the People's Party candidate delivered a presentation to university students se- several years ago, offering his post-mortem on the game. Um, Greco expressed surprise that his students and faculty reacted negatively to the game, with one calling it the most racist game I've ever played. Greco says his game is not racist in the slightest, noting that he made fun of his own Italian heritage. Uh, he also claimed that some students thought his gay pride parade level was hilarious. My friends and I love people of all cultures, and we also love humor of all types. That includes harmless racist jokes, Greco said in the video. Uh, the game was intended to make a joke about how ridiculous cultural stereotypes are so we can laugh about it together and move on with our lives. Um, during the presentation, the People's Party candidate offered an uh, interesting side note about the game's Israel level. According, according to Greco, a faculty member at the university strongly recommended that he remove Jewish stereotypes from the game. He was like, no, get rid of it immediately. Don't have any religious content whatsoever. I know that subject is very, very touchy. So, yeah... This is just a, a game where you Great. mass shoot minority people. Um, anyway, in, in, in 2017, uh, Greco posted a photo on Facebook of an illustration of Pepe the Frog, which he said was drawn by one of his students in, in, in the whiteboard of his York Region High School. Oh, um, Pepe had a little speech bubble that said, Free Kekistan. Great. Yeah. yeah. So now... Oh, look, the gamers are Nazis. So currently, Greco is spending his time tweeting about critical race theory and trying to get into office under the People's Party banner. Um, in his Twitter bio, he calls himself an egalitarian libertarian nationalist. And he still also teaches computer science at Ontario All the High School. different what? ways people call themselves fascists. I know, isn't, isn't it fun? <laughs> it's really great. It's not fun. These people are all, all the worst, Ghouls. most scum. Um, and one, one more thing before we sign off. Um, last month, right before the September election, uh, I was forwarded some pictures of some People's Party uh, of Canada posters and flyers put up linking to their campaign website that someone f- came across um, around town. Uh, not not Portland, like somewhere in Canada. Um, mm-hmm. Under the PPC logo, there was uh, you know uh, pictures of people's faces and big black text that said, It's okay to be white. Oh, oh. great. Rad. So that's the liberal utopia of Canada, everybody. Um, and love to see basically, it. yeah, like the reason why I wanted to put these episodes together is because like we, we lots of like, you know, we make a lot of jokes about, you know, escaping to Canada as the states gets too fascist. And I just want to like say, like, I'm not saying Canada's going to accelerate at the same rate, but Canada is not immune to the same thing. Like it's 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 yeah, you it's can't there. escape this. You can't es- you can't run away from creeping it. authoritarianism by moving. No. 
Yeah, yeah. Like, unless you move to a country with no history of authoritarianism, like I don't know, Germany. Uh huh. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's important with with Canada, particularly, is that like Canada is like affected by American political trends, and you see this absolutely. Like, like one of, one of the things that I remember looking at when I was when I was looking into sort of uh, uh, if, if you look at the history of like anti Asian riots, for example. So yeah. there's this huge wave in 1907 that goes like it goes all the way yep. up the West Coast. A the lot West of them in Canada, Coast, and it ends in Toronto. Yeah. Yep. A lot and, of you know, them in it, it, yeah, and, and you see, you see that like, and you see that like today too, where it's like, yeah, the uh, Toronto, I, I think, has the highest rate of of anti Asian attacks like in North America. Uh, that's not surprising. Which is pretty impressive considering nope. like the absolute shit show going on in like New York and L A and Seattle, and it's like, no, Toronto's <laughs> worse. No, it's it, it's real bad. There's, oh, I, I I I talk a lot about right. how the far right's getting a lot a lot more a lot stronger of an, of an influence in Alberta. And it is spreading into other eastern eastern provinces, not just inside Quebec. You know, there was the incel attack in Toronto a few years ago that killed, like, I think, like a dozen people. Uh, of course, there was the Quebec um, mosque shooting. There's been a lot of these kind of things popping off, and you know, there's there's even more starting in like uh, British Columbia as well, which is which has a decent far right kind of influence, at least on the eastern side of BC, um, away from like Victoria and from Vancouver. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to like put these together and be like, hey, you know, it's it's worth looking at these countries that we usually view as, you know, generally doing better and be like, no, like it's the same thing is happening there. And it's all it's all part of the same overarching slide rightward that we've seen in both in like the UK. We were even seeing it now in Germany. We're seeing it, you know, in this obviously the states under Trump and in Canada, even though the liberals have won the past few elections, it's still scooting rightward. So yeah, I just wanted to put this thing together. If you want to keep up to date on Canadian stuff, you can check out the Canadian Anti-Hate Network, which does work tracking extremism in Canada. And yeah, that is uh, that is what I put together. Thanks, Garrison. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, Garrison. Every- you're welcome. Well, that's the episode. That's going to do it for us here at It Could Happen Here Today. Come back tomorrow or, you know, whenever, and we'll talk about another part of the world. Maybe, uh, I don't know, Portugal. Fuck it. I I'm, I don't have stuff pulled for Portugal episode. You have to give well, me way more heads up get for it that. Ready by tomorrow. <laughs> no, that's what we're doing now. <laughs> Follow it's us up. on Twitter and Instagram at It Could Happen Here Pod and Cool Zone Media. Leave five star reviews, whatever. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It could happen here as a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 
24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.